The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. What's up, Max? How are you? What up? Thanks for Pleasure having me. Pleasure to meet you. Same. I've enjoyed your content online, so it's exciting to meet you in person. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. So you were telling me before we got rolling, I said, save it. Let's just talk about it. What is this uh, Alzheimer's yes. thing that you're doing? What are you doing? Yeah. So I've been deeply immersed in the in the Alzheimer's dementia prevention world for the past almost almost decade at this point. Um, I'm not a, just to lay it out up front, I'm not a medical doctor. I didn't take the academic route. Um, I started college sort of on a, on a pre-med track, but what ended up happening was uh, I ended up going into journalism straight out of college, and I ended up working for a TV network in the U.S. Um, that was backed by Al Gore back in the day. And so I, I got to hone my storytelling chops there, but I'd always been really passionate about health, nutrition, medicine, things like that. But in 2011, my, my mother started to display the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia called Lewy body dementia, which is like mm. a, a rare form of dementia. One Robin in f- Williams had that. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible condition. It's, uh, it's described as, as feeling like, having, like you have both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease at the same time. And certainly that's what I, what I observed in, in my mom. And so when she started to display those symptoms, um, it had taken me and my family completely off guard. I, I had no prior family history of any kind of neurodegenerative condition. Uh, my mom certainly wasn't old at the time. She was 58. She was still, you know, a spirited, youthful woman in, in middle age. Um, she had all the pigment in her hair. And um, for me, I was in between jobs, and I, I really had the opportunity. I was grateful to have had the opportunity to, to, to go with her to different doctor's appointments. And I grew up in New York City, so we had access to, you know, cathedrals to medical um, advice and and. Uh, and, and examination, and in every instance, we were met with what I've come to call diagnose and adios. Basically, a physician would run a battery of esoteric tests on my mom, scribble down a few notes on a prescription pad, and, and send us on our way. But we had to ultimately take a trip to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, which is known for taking on really complex medical cases. They build a team around the patient, and it was there that for the first time, my mom was diagnosed with a, a neurodegenerative condition. She was prescribed drugs for both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. It wasn't um, until a few years later that she actually received the Lewy body dementia diagnosis. But at that point, um, I started to dive into the research because I had been trained as a journalist, which, you know, you're not trained as rigorously as a, as a PhD scientist, but you're kind of taught similar, similarly to investigate things, to maintain skepticism, to, you know, ask questions. And I started to look into the literature and, and just generally get a sense of what it was that my mom had been diagnosed with, what, what, this, what, this, you know, what this entailed. And I realized that in most cases, dementia begins in the brain decades before the first symptom, 10, 20, 30 years even, um, by some estimates. And so for me, this became something really important uh, to explore as a potentially preventable condition, because I realized for the first time that I had a risk factor, that my mom you know, was my risk factor, essentially. I, didn't, I hadn't even yet looked into my genes at that point. But, um, but so I, uh, I started looking into it, and I, I came across all of these, like, fascinating insights, which, which we can talk about. But I decided at that point um, that I, to, to sort of do what I could to help push the, you know, move the needle with this condition, um, that I would use my skills, which at the time were, uh, filmmaking, because I had just come off, you know, I was like producing content for TV and I was on camera. I was a communicator as well. And so I decided to do a documentary um, on the topic of dementia prevention, the first ever uh, 
documentary on dementia as a potentially preventable condition. We've all seen dementia documentaries on, you know, HBO and, and networks like that, and they're always they always push this this very like doom and gloom um, mentality about the condition, which I which I understand. It is a very difficult condition. It's America's most feared condition, after all, um, and this is a condition that. You know, 90% of what we know about Alzheimer's disease in particular, which is just one form of dementia, has been discovered only in the past 15 years. So it's a very rapidly evolving field of science. But I felt like if we know that this is a condition that begins in the brain decades before the presentation of symptoms, then to me what that is, that's a very empowering insight. That means that we have agency to change our cognitive destiny. So I started shooting with my mom, which was very hard to do um, because, you know, I mean, my the person who I love most in the world, I was watching um, decline right in front of the camera. But also, um, I decided to exploit my media credentials at the time to then talk to researchers and scientists around the world. Um, and I was doing my own research in the primary literature as well. But I decided to, um, to, yeah, to go to these labs and clinics where they're really ushering in dementia as a potentially preventable condition. And I actually signed myself up to become a, 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 a study subject in one, actually, at Weill Cornell in New York. And, um, and I actually became, ultimately I became um, a collaborator with the uh, principal investigator there, who's become my mentor over the years, Richard Isaacson. Um, and I got to uh, co-author a paper in a clinician's textbook uh, on the clinical practice of, of dementia prevention. Because, you know, a, a, after all this time, I've learned so much about, um, about the condition, the etiology, and, and so forth. Uh, but this documentary, I'm super excited for it. It's... Um, it's called Little Empty Boxes, and we have a trailer up at littleemptyboxes.com. Why Little Empty Boxes? Well, it's a, it's a nod to something that my mom says in the film, which is actually something it did, you know, my mom's condition, it seemed like her cognition had just severely downshifted, almost, almost overnight. Um, and so my mom never, my mom never like forgot who I was or anything like that. The, the presentation of Lewy body dementia is different from Alzheimer's disease. And once you've seen one case of dementia, just generally speaking, you've seen one case of dementia. Every, every dementia is, is different. But in my mom's case, it led to her often losing her train of thought soon after uh, beginning to express an idea. Um, and she would often say things that just, you know, didn't, didn't make logical sense. So it's sort of a nod to what, um, to something that she, you know, that she says in the film. But uh, I'm super excited because we, we inked a partnership with a, uh, a wonderful foundation called the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. And, um, and um, yeah, I'm just super excited to... Uh, is dementia purely genetic or is it caused by environmental factors or any other things that people consume? Great question. Um, so... Though dementia, though Alzheimer's disease was coined in 1906 by a physician named Alois Alzheimer, the brain has long been thought of to sit in sort of the ivory tower of the brain, guarded from what happens down below by what's called the blood-brain barrier. But we now know that the brain is influenced by everything that happens down below. And the, the dogma, especially with regard to Alzheimer's disease fundraising over the past couple of decades, has really been that this is, the, this is a condition that you can't treat, prevent, or slow. But we now have really solid data to say that we actually, that it is a, it is a potentially preventable condition. So when it comes to uh, our risk for developing Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, there are basically two categories of risk. You have your non-modifiable risk factors, of which there are three. 
So you've got your age, your genes, and your gender. So your age, age is still the number one risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease, right? You can't change your age yet. You, um, you have your gender. If you're a woman, your risk is double that as compared to a male's. And you have your genes. Now, genes is something that we can actually talk about because though you can't change your genes, making them therefore a non-modifiable risk factor, you can change the expression of your genes, how your genes express themselves moment to moment. So for example, if you live in the United States and you carry a copy or two of what's called the APOE4 allele, so it's basically a polymorph polymorphism, meaning it's not a mutation, it's actually a very common gene variant. About one in four people carry the APOE4 allele. In the United States, that increases your risk anywhere between two and four, 14 fold, depending on whether you carry one or two copies. I think that's also the same genetic expression that makes you have CTE. CTE, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it makes everything more, it makes your brain more vulnerable in general to insult, whether that is from TBI, uh, exposure to pollutants, exposure to unhealthy ways of eating. Do we know why it does that? Well, it's interesting, yeah. So the APOE4 allele is thought to be the ancestral version. So it's the first version. All, all non-human primates are APOE44. So they carry the APOE4 allele, not just one copy, but two copies, and yet they don't develop Alzheimer's disease. When you look to people, we've evolved uh, these different isoforms of um, the APOE gene. So we have APOE2, 3, and 4. And just to reiterate, APOE4 is the ancestral allele. So cultures that have um, longer exposure to modern agriculture actually there's lower frequency of the APOE4 allele. The thinking is that that agriculture, right, like when we became domesticated, when we started basing our diets around grains, when we became more sedentary, less uh, generalized in terms of our um, cognitive, the, the, the daily cognitive tasks that our ancestors would have undertaken, that it's selected against the APOE4 allele. So it's possible that that allele, which again is very common, one in four people carry it, carry it is sort of the canary in the coal mine for the for the Western way of life. That if you adopt a Western way of life and you eat, you know, today sixty percent of calories that adults consume come from ultra processed junk foods. Right, we're more sedentary than ever before in human history. We've got more stress. We're exposed to more environmental pollutants. That that is what dramatically is what pulls the trigger. Right, because genes load the gun. It's our diets and our lifestyles that pull the trigger. But if you were to take somebody with that same genotype, right, and move them to a less industrial a less industrialized part of the world, like, say, Ibadan, Nigeria, where the frequency of the APOE4 allele is just as common, it has, no it has little to no association with Alzheimer's disease. So just to put that another way, what that suggests is if you're genetically at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease in the United States, you might simply move to Ibadan, Nigeria, or another less industrialized part of the world and see that risk abolished. So with this consumption of uh, processed foods that is responsible for a large percentage of the calories that people consume today. Is the human body adapting to that? Is that why this APOE4 is less prevalent than it is in other cultures? You know, it's possible, although with, with age being the primary risk factor, it's unlikely that um, that, that has put significant selection pressure. Um, so I'm not, I'm, not actually, I'm not sure, but we do know you know, there are, I think, gene studies where they've looked at 
um, expression of uh, genes that produce enzymes that break down amylase, right, like starch and things like that. And those are increasing, I think, over time. It's a little little out of my wheelhouse. But, um, but generally, I mean, yeah, the standard American diet is completely aberrant from the diet, you know, that our ancestors consumed. The diet that, that really we attribute to the development of the human brain. 60% of the calories that we consume today come from ultra-processed, packaged convenience, convenience foods. Um, it's a massive problem. I mean, it's driving obesity. It's driving type 2 diabetes. If you have type 2 diabetes, so going back to Alzheimer's disease and, and this, this gene expression, so the APOE4 allele is, you know, you have it, but it's not necessarily destiny. And 90% of Alzheimer's cases, I'm sorry, more, nine, like 99% of Alzheimer's cases are attributable to some interplay between our genes and our environment. There's a very small proportion of patients with Alzheimer's disease that have a gene mutation that is a deterministic gene. Um, and this is called the early onset familial Alzheimer's gene. And that gene basically guarantees that you're going to have Alzheimer's disease. But that makes up only 1% to 2% of cases. The vast majority of people who develop Alzheimer's disease, um, it's the interplay between their genes and their, and their environment. So excluding environmental factors like pollutants and plastics and all sorts of other things that affect people's bodies, what, what are the other things that a person can do to make sure that they at least are preventing the, the possibility of this happening? Yeah. Like, so if you're saying that like, if, the, if the symptoms take, if it takes decades to, to exhibit symptoms, what are they seeing? When they say that the the people exhibit signs or exhibit some sort of a a, a a future of dementia, like how how can you see that? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, so there there you can't necessarily look inside the brain. Um, I mean, you can. There are uh, studies that look at what's called brain glucose metabolism. So something that you see in Alzheimer's disease is a, re a reduced ability of the brain to generate energy from glucose. This is called glucose hypometabolism. This is a very, uh, this is a, a defining feature actually of Alzheimer's disease. And I say Alzheimer's disease, again, my mom didn't have Alzheimer's disease, but it's the most common form of dementia. And so all the research on it really looks at mostly Alzheimer's disease. And then you get sort of like all cause dementia in there, but like these, these more niche variants like Lewy body, like frontotemporal, there's very little research on them. So when I say, sometimes I use Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia interchangeably, but, um, but with Alzheimer's disease, one of the primary features is called glucose hypometabolism. So the brain's inability to create uh, energy from glucose. So you see that decades before you see symptoms of dementia? Yeah, especially with people who are genetically at risk. About 10 per, a 10% reduction in the ability to generate energy with out of glucose, which is the primary energy substrate for the brain under fed conditions. So if people see this, if they get a test and they they find out that they have this APOE for, yeah. and then they um, get their glucose check. How are they checking that, their, their ability to process glucose? Yeah. I mean, they do what are called FTG PET tests, scans. Um, so they'll just look to see glucose uptake in the brain. But um, Where does one get, like if someone is saying, oh my God, I have dementia in my yeah. family and they're listening to this, what can, how can I find out? What do they do? You know, it's, that's not a test that you can easily get. Um, they'll use it for uh, study purposes, like research purposes, but it's not a test being used clinically. Um, the, the, what correlates very closely with reduced glucose metabolism in the brain is 
your degree of insulin uh, resistance in the body or sensitivity. So if you are insulin sensitive, you've talked many times on the podcast in the past about metabolic health, insulin sensitivity versus resistance. The sort of classic condition that we see here in the U.S. characterized by insulin resistance is type 2 diabetes. But what the studies have shown is that insulin resistance correlates very closely with reduced glucose metabolism in the brain. So what you really want to do to keep your brain healthy is to make sure that you're as insulin sensitive as possible. That's one thing that you can do that um, you know you're checking off that box. Because when it comes to, so we talked about the, the, and let me know if I should like, you know, kind of double click on any one of these because, you know, I know we're covering a lot, but when it comes to the, the other uh, risk factors, the, what are called the modifiable risk factors, you have 12 of them. And one of them is diabetes. So insulin resistance, obviously the hallmark of type 2 diabetes. We know that insulin resistance is strongly correlated to reduced glucose um, utilization in the brain. Um, obesity is another modifiable risk factor. Studies show that as your waistline expands, your brain shrinks. Total brain volume is actually inversely. That explains Bert Kreischer. <laughs> yeah. Call Bert. <laughs> he needs to know about this. Um, so yeah, obesity is no bueno. It's not good. You know, I mean, there's like this push online now, like the health. Body positivity. Body positivity. Yeah, I think it's a big so problem. So foolish. Yeah. I just, I, I can't imagine being so sensitive to people's feelings that you ignore a very clear warning sign that they're doing something that's insanely unhealthy and preventable and it's something that should be broadcast to everybody everybody should know this is this is a real factor in a host of different problems that are going to happen with your body 100% i mean you can be more or less healthy at a given size right but to be not obese is healthier than being obese. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And by the year 2030, one in two Americans are going to be not just overweight, but obese. I thought it was already there. We're close. We're 40%, but we're getting there. It's insane. <sighs> yeah, it's and it's clearly connected to our diet. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that I have enjoyed uh, is a lot of your posts on diet and food. Uh, but we, we should, we'll get to that. But let's before we get into that, when you talk about preventative measures that someone can take other than decreasing your waistline, losing weight? What what are the other factors? Does exercise have any factor on dementia? Yeah. Exercise is medicine when it comes to the brain. So, and we can tackle this from a number of different angles, but when you exercise, you're literally pushing fresh blood up to the brain and blood carries oxygen, nutrients, antioxidants, things like that. Um, when you exercise, you are increasing the expression of a protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is sort of considered to be like a miracle grow protein for the brain. Uh, you're increasing blood flow. You're increasing the expression of BDNF. You're changing the, the neurochemistry of the brain, essentially, with a workout. I mean, I'm a, I'm a different person when I leave the gym than I was walking into it. So you can subjectively, you can feel that, that it's doing something to your brain. Yeah. You're reducing inflammation. You're reducing blood pressure. You're normalizing healthy blood pressure. This is something that is, uh, this is, I mean, crucially important, but one of the seminal uh, trials that I use in my argument, which is now, you know, finally being accepted by, you know, the, the, the medical establishment, but um, the Sprint Mind trial found that for people who were aggressively treated for their high blood pressure with pharmacologic drugs, but 
Um, but you know, this ties into exercise because exercise is uh, just as effective as blood pressure lowering medication. Meta analyses show. But for these people who were put on aggressive blood pressure normalizing therapy, they reduced their um, the risk of developing mild cognitive impairment. And mild cognitive impairment is sort of a prodrome. It's it's considered like pre dementia. You'll often develop mild cognitive impairment before you're diagnosed with. That's dementia. also Bert Kreischer. <laughs> Send him a message. This is this <laughs> warning one's for sign. Him. This one's for you, Bert. <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, so exercise is like it. It helps to normalize bl blood pressure. It reduces insul insulin sensitivity. It helps to, you know, the hormonal milieu. We talked about insulin resistance. Physical exercise, right? Particularly resistance training, which is so important for people to do. It is one of the best ways of fostering insulin sensitivity. Resistance training above cardio? Well, car they're both beneficial. They're both, be and actually, I, um, I like to remind myself this because I dislike doing cardio. Like, I don't like running on a treadmill. I love lifting weights. I've been doing that my whole life, pretty much. But cardio is super important because we, we have a ton of evidence on cardio as it pertains to BDN BDNF, which is this brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And we know this because it's very easy to get a mouse to run on a treadmill and then to sacrifice it and see what's going on in the brain. It's a lot harder to get a mouse to do squats and bench presses. Mm. You know, So from, a, from like the basic science standpoint, we have a lot of evidence on specifically what cardio does for the brain, right? But resistance training, we know in terms of bolstering whole body resilience, robustness, uh, you, we know that your muscles are a very important glucose disposal sink, right? So, I mean, we live in a time where your average American consumes 300 grams of carbohydrates every single day, right? Our bodies don't have uh, a, a way to store carbohydrates beyond what, you know, the storage capacity of our muscles and our liver tissue, right? It's not like fat. You can store 3,000 calories of, of fat in a single pound of fat tissue, right? But, you know, your muscles, your liver combine only about four, 500 grams of, of glucose, you know, in a, in a given day or, or at, a, at a time, rather. And so, um, so yeah, resistance training, you're building, your, you're building up your musculature, which is going to allow you to continue to exercise and be mobile, which we know is really important for the brain, um, for glucose disposal. It's crucially important. So I think, I think both are key. You can obviously tweak your resistance training regimen to have a more sort of cardio aspect to it, mm -hmm. right? Like shortening the time between sets. But I do think that there's value in doing in doing both, you know. Um, but yeah, exercise. It's just uh, at this point, like I think it was uh, two or three years ago that the American Academy of Neurology finally made exercise a uh, something that physicians could prescribe to treat somebody who's presenting with subjective cognitive cognitive impairment in the you know as a as a prophylactic so that they won't go on to develop mild cognitive impairment. So. It's well, really that's very important. progressive of them. Yeah, I'm glad they're doing that now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, um, and I and I've seen this personally, like in in science. Like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of science. I my work relies on it, and and the last thing that I would ever want to do is sort of undermine confidence in science. But there's science, and then there's the science, right? You know, and um, especially in the field of Alzheimer's disease, there was this huge revelation recently that the past 16 years of um, Alzheimer's research, in many ways, was built on fraud. Yeah, I read that. That is one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because it's so crazy. Please tell people about this because it's so insane and it's so hard to believe that this could happen in modern medicine, especially with something that affects so many people as Alzheimer's. But please tell people about this study. Yeah. So basically, the prevailing 
hypothesis as to what causes Alzheimer's disease over the past century, right, has been what's called the amyloid hypothesis. So ever since Alois Alzheimer discovered or named uh, Alzheimer's disease in 1906 and looked into the brain of the cadaver and saw these um, plaques aggregating around neurons, right, in the extracellular space around neurons, the plaques have come to be sort of the force, the, the, the focus of um, Alzheimer's research, really. And the idea was that these plaques were the causative force in the, in the condition. Um, much like the plaque on your teeth, right? You see these plaques in the brain of, an, of, an, of a person with Alzheimer's disease. And so that's really been the target of drug therapy. And the idea was that until we can find a drug that would uh, reduce the plaque burden, reduce the plaque, get rid of the plaque in the brains of a, of a senior person, right? Somebody who's at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, that it's a disease that you can't prevent. You can't, there's nothing to do to treat. Um, but the problem was that they can never actually tie the plaque to cognitive decline, right? Like the clinically meaningful symptom, the symptomology of Alzheimer's disease, that it messes up your cognition, that it makes you, you know, that it makes you forget your loved ones, ultimately forget who you are, ultimately forgetting how to eat, right? And, that, and, and, and nourish yourself. They could never tie those symptoms to, to the plaque, right? Until a paper published in the journal Nature in 2006. So what happened was this researcher named Sylvain Lesney at the University of Minnesota basically was looking into these, the brains of uh, mice who are bred to overexpress what's called uh, amyloid precursor protein, which is the precursor to amyloid beta, which is the protein that makes up sort of the skeleton of these plaques that we see aggregate, right? So what he, do, what he did was he isolated a subtype that he called... A-beta star 56, and injected it into a uh, young and healthy mouse, or rat, mouse. And he saw the, that that mouse's cognition rapidly declined. So that was the missing link, right? That he found a subtype of this amyloid beta protein that serves as the backbone of these plaques, which could never be pinned to the cognitive decline itself, right? The memory loss itself. But he claimed that he found it and when injected into the, into the brain, into the body of a healthy mouse, he saw a rapid decline in terms of their, of their cognition, right? So that was the missing link. And so at that point, um, faith in the so-called amyloid hypothesis was starting to wane because they couldn't find effective drugs. Um, Alzheimer's drug trials have a 99.6% fail rate, so worse than for cancer, worse than for any other, any other disease state, really. And... Um, and the drugs that are currently FDA-approved FDA on the market, they're biochemical Band-Aids. They're minimally effective. I mean, they modulate various neurotransmitters, but, you know, I've, I've heard it described like, uh, you know, trying, uh, expecting to remove amyloid from the brain uh, of a person with Alzheimer's disease and to see their cognition come back is sort of like thinking that if you remove all the headstones from a grave, you know, the people will come back to life, right? Like there's widespread neuronal dysfunction and death in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's disease. And in tandem with that, uh, scanning technology has allowed us to look into the brains of healthy controls. And what we see is that there's amyloid plaque in the brains of healthy controls as well. So there's no correlation between amyloid burden in the brain and one's cognitive abilities. But nonetheless, when this paper came out in 2006, it renewed fervor um, 
in terms of this hypothesis, because he found the subtype of amyloid that could be injected into a young and healthy mouse that would then impair, seriously impair their cognition, right? And so that, that renewed interest in this, in this hypothesis, and it's what ultimately led to the fact that just a couple years ago, two years ago, um, there was a highly controversial drug that was approved by the FDA called aducanumab or aduhelm. And this is a drug that effectively reduced plaque burden in the brain. For the first time, they found a drug that could actually reduce plaque burden in the brain. But it didn't lead to any improvement in cognitive symptoms. Nonetheless, it was given the green light against, uh, against tons of opposition that the FDA received. They put together a panel of 11 people, neuroscientists, neurologists, right? Eight of them told the FDA not to approve this drug. And what was the reason for that? The reason for that was that the drug didn't, didn't move the needle on any clinically meaningful uh, symptom. Were right? there significant side effects for the there drug? There were. So 35% of the people in the trial had significant brain swelling, and half of them had uh, bleeding associated with that brain swelling. Because they, <sighs> these are antibodies. So aducanumab is an antibody that basically targets, causes your own immune system to target the amyloid plaques, right? And so what that's doing is causing an inflammatory response in the brain, right? So 35% of the patients in that, in the, in the phase two trials, I believe, had horrible side effects and no clinically meaningful uh, effect on, um, on their cognition. But nonetheless, because it effectively did reduce the amyloid plaque burden, there was this intense pressure, right, to, uh, to get it greenlit because that's like right. the amyloid hypothesis right there, right? Uh-huh. So huge problem. One of the big uh, vocal sort of skeptics about this drug, aducanumab, is a guy, a Vanderbilt researcher named Matthew Schrag. And so Matthew Schrag was like very vocal, vocally against the approval of this drug, which again, doesn't do anything, right? Like horrible risk of side effects, no clinically meaningful effect on, 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 the, on the symptoms that we want to improve, right? Um, for a patient with Alzheimer's disease. And, um, and so he was vocally critical of that. And then he also was working on some other, some other drug. And he, uh, so uh, what was revealed basically in the science paper that came out was that he was um, dabbling in a, on a website called PubPeer, which is um, a site where you can go, it's known for post-publication peer review. So before paper gets uh, accepted for publication, it undergoes this peer review process, right? And so he found that there were a lot of sort of red flags that were being brought up on this message board, essentially, about this nature paper, this like seminal nature paper that was published that found to, it was like the missing link, right, between like the amyloid hypothesis and like the clinically meaningful, meaningful um, symptoms, meaning memory loss. And he did a bit of like image sleuthing, which is not generally part of the peer review process, right? And he looked at these, um, the way data is illustrated in this, in this paper, as it is in, in, in research, generally it's called a Western blot, which is like a visual representation of, of data, the presence of proteins and so forth. And he found that they were all, for the most part, fabricated. In fact, this A-beta star 56 wasn't found by any other team, hasn't been found by any other team. It, it, it basically came to light that it was essentially fake. The whole thing was faked. What was the motivation for this person to fake all this? Because the thing, I mean, I think that we... We like to believe that science is this good faith endeavor towards human flourishing, right? But in the industry of science, there are flawed humans, just like there are in every other industry, right? Yeah. And scientists in general, I see this all the time in nutrition online on social media, right? 
social media is a great like sort of they say that sunlight is the best disinfectant like social media is a great way to kind of see how this plays out right because scientists are notoriously territorial obstinate they you know their their reputations egotistical yeah Yeah. their reputations are everything right yeah and um i mean it's just like i see it i see it every day i see humans yeah exactly yeah so yeah so there's bad apples right like i think a lot of people in science um like i'm i'm i live and breathe nutrition i'm it's the thing that i'm most passionate about like in life right like fitness nutrition sleep disease prevention my mom is what galvanized that that passion for me right and what what my mom my mom went through and my desire to prevent it from happening to others that i care about and ultimately people you know from all walks of life but a lot you know a lot of people go into science go into medicine because it's just a, it's a career path right right it's a career path for somebody wanting validation it comes with prestige comes with money comes with all the things that that like make sense that a person would want right but then ego gets in the way and it and it becomes really problematic i mean you see it in nutrition all the time you see it in nutrition like all the freaking time so this person that fabricated this study and fabricated all this data what consequences are there for that person i mean i think that the the department of justice is is going to be looking into it but but um going to be looking into it i mean this is if they're not already yeah yeah if they're not already but I personally, so one of the worst things about this, right, is it's not just like the lost time and all the money that went to continue looking down this sort of path of the amyloid hypothesis, right? Looking in the wrong place, really, because amyloid is there, but it's sort of like what you see in cholesterol, in like atherosclerosis, right? Like cholesterol. It's like everybody like has pointed at cholesterol as being the bad guy because cholesterol is clearly there in atherosclerotic plaques, right? But what's causing it to be there? That's the question that these researchers should have been asking all along. And some have, right? Like there there have been other, like my mentor, as I mentioned, you know, at Cornell, who I've been lucky to lucky enough to work with over the years on certain projects, um, you know, knew that, that that there was another way. It's this glucose hypometabolism, right? It's like, but there's no money in that. There's no money in saying like, make your keep yourself as insulin sensitive as possible you know reduce your exposure to environmental pollutants don't hit your head too hard you know all these different modifiable risk factors it's not as it's not you it's not druggable the way that this like amyloid beta plat, protein um is is druggable and so i think the worst thing about it is that anybody who would advance an alternate viewpoint over the past couple of decades would be ridiculed and silenced by the quote amyloid mafia and I was the, I, I, this happened to me when I first started doing my documentary, um, Little Empty Boxes, which when I first started doing it, uh, it had a different name. I called it, it was called Breadhead and I can talk about why I named it that, but that was always a sort of a working title, uh, for the project. But somebody at one of these foundations, right? Like, um, there's all these like big, like Alzheimer's foundations. Uh, I'm lucky to be working on this project with one who really believes in me and the project the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, but there are these other nonprofits that really what they are is just like a front for, you know, perpetuating the status quo and, and keeping the sort of the funding pipeline open for drug discovery. And so when I first got started doing, working on this, on my film, I did a Kickstarter campaign for it. And one of these nonprofit, quote unquote, nonprofits, right, deeply invested in the amyloid hypothesis, came out and wrote an, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal disparaging me and my project and any other alternate sort of viewpoint, and talking glowingly about that aducanumab drug, which at the time had yet to be approved, right? And it was so 
like painful to me at the time because I was like working on this project out of the love and passion that I had for my mom and my desire to get the science out to catalyze, you know, interest in this science. It takes 17 years on average for what's discovered in science to be put into day-to-day clinical practice. So I was like, that's, that's time we don't have to lose when the brains of our loved ones are at stake. And so, yeah, I was like directly sort of in the crosshairs at the time for this, like this amyloid mafia. I was like directly affected by it. Because this medication is profitable. Yeah, because the medication is profitable and that the whole avenue was thought to, you know, if you could find a drug that would reduce amyloid burden in the brain, I mean, that makes, that's going to make shareholders sure. really happy. And this drug, is it still being prescribed? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's approved. It's approved. And so there's no real way of telling how many people have died from this drug because most of the people that are taking this drug already are experiencing this neurodegenerative disease, and you could easily chalk it off to that being the cause of death. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak to like, you know, people's experiences on it currently, but I do know that, um, that the trials were, you know, I mean, if I had a loved one based on what I know about this drug and those trials, I, my, my loved one currently would not be on that drug. They would be perhaps experimenting with, uh, you know, and this is a very difficult sort of road to go down. I guess it's easier to say if I had dementia, right? If I myself had dementia, I would be experimenting with a ketogenic diet on myself and other ketogenic therapies because ketogenic diets, what they do. So as I mentioned in the Alzheimer's brain, the ability to generate energy from glucose is reduced by about 50%, 45, 50%. Its ability to generate energy from ketone bodies is unperturbed. So the idea is that a ketogenic diet can essentially keep the lights on in the Alzheimer's brain. It's not a cure. But, um, but there has been uh, research um, on patients with Alzheimer's disease, mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, that ketogenic, a ketogenic diet intervention can actually improve functional capacity in those patients, which is everything, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what I would do for myself. Uh, for other people, you know, when my mom um, was starting to show these symptoms, I, I attempted to put her on some kind of like ketogenic style diet. But actually, as you, uh, what's very interesting is that people that develop Alzheimer's disease, they, they start to develop a sweet tooth. And it's thought that that's sort of like the brain crying out for sugar, mm. essentially, because it's just, it's struggling to generate right. energy, you know, and dietary change is difficult for anybody, let alone somebody with dementia. So I can only, yeah, I can only speak for myself. So even though this study has been shown to be fraudulent, and even though that medication has shown to have some pretty severe side effects, and even though the amyloid plaque hypothesis has kind of been disproven now as being the cause of it, why are they still prescribing that drug? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, a <laughs> because it takes 17 years. Right, but once they have access to the fact that that study was flawed, not just yeah. flawed, but fraudulent, I mean that's it's pretty significant the impact that's had. They should pull it off the market. I mean, think about the num the, the sheer numbers of people that have dementia, Alzheimer's, and s- these significant horrific problems, and they're basing the treatment of it on fraud. Yeah, and the fact that they still do it without like having this immediate cease, like what could be other than generating more revenue? Other than generating more revenue, like what what yeah. else could possibly be the reason for continuing to prescribe that drug other than ignorance? Yeah. Well, I think that it's not that this paper came out and suddenly the amyloid hypothesis is, uh, 
you know, has been debunked or whatever. You know, like there, there is still a ton of money invested in this hypothesis. And there are still a lot of researchers who think whether or not this drug is, is, the, is the, you know, this is like version one. Right. So there are still many researchers who think that this is like still the target, still the appropriate target. But once they realized that the study was fraudulent, yeah, and that when injected into these mice and it causes significant de degeneration, that this is not really accurate. Yeah. this is all fake. Yeah. Well, the so then they don't have a mechanism. Right. Right. So why are they still prescribing a disease to combat the mechanism that's proven to be fraudulent? Yeah, I think it's just because that's where all this, you know, there. It's just there's. What is the term? It's like a sunk cost fallacy. You know, I think people in, in many ways are just so, the, you know, whether it's like academia or pharma, we're just so deeply invested in this hypothesis. And it hasn't been debunked. And this fraudulent paper didn't test aducanumab, the drug. So, you know, I think that... But the fraudulent paper is the reason why yeah. that drug was approved. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that it's a, is fucking wild. If you're a person right all now scam. who's listening to this and they're dealing with, you know, my friend Jessie May, uh, her her dad had I know her. Alzheimer's. Yeah. And it's, it was so hard for her. I mean, it was, it's, it was so terrible to watch her suffer while her, her, her father, who she loved dearly, was just deteriorating. Oh, it's super hard. And you get drugs that, you know, one of them, Namenda, it's like an NMDA receptor uh, modulator, and then you get another one, Donapezil, which works to boost, you know, acetylcholine. They're just bi they're biochemical band aids. They do not nothing to address the underlying pathology, and um, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was literally until it, I believe, twenty twenty was the year, um, or twenty seventeen, I think, was the first time that the Lancet Neurology acknowledged that. Um, a significant proportion of dementia cases were attributable to modifiable risk factors. So that's sort of their way of saying that, look, you can uh, put, there's a significant proportion of these cases that are potentially preventable, right? Obesity, type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Diet, smoking, smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, air mm. pollution, hearing impairment. Alcohol, uh, air pollution. Air pollution. Really? Yeah. As of 2020, that has now been acknowledged to be a major contributor. You know, exposure to fine particulate matter like PM 2.5 has been shown to pierce the blood-brain barrier. And, mm. and amyloid, I mean, the thing about amyloid is that it's like our body, our brains produce it. It's not necessarily bad the same way that like cholesterol, you know, we, when you hear the term cholesterol, like, you know, we think of it as this, as this bad pathologic thing that we want to get out of our bodies, right? But cholesterol is vital to life, right? Like we need it. Same with amyloid. Amyloid it helps you formulate hormones. Hormones. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a, at every cell membrane like requires cholesterol to stay yeah. supple and fluid, right? Which is vegans don't want to hear that ever. They, they don't want to hear they, that. They panic. Well, I, yeah, I butt heads with them all the time. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, it's an ideology, you know, unfortunately. It's an ideology based on a really good premise. The premise is you want to do less less harm. You want to be uh, a more ethical, moral, kinder person. And I, I respect their motivation. The problem is in practice, it, both in monocrop agriculture, which is horrific for the environment, and then also in the effects on the human body. If you, it's very difficult to do correctly. You know, and we've had conversations before. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of documentaries and a lot of people that are propagandizing this ideology. They're doing it like it's a religion. 
and that's how they treat it. They they ignore any evidence to the contrary. They they won't even look at eggs, <laughs> which are really kind of I mean, if you have chickens or if you know someone has chickens or if you can get eggs from a, a place that has free-range chickens, it's like zero ethical dilemma. It's they lay eggs every day. Yeah. They're not going to be chickens. It's just free protein. If you let these chickens roam around and eat grass and bugs and do the stuff they're supposed to do, you have literally one of the most healthy sources of food that's available to the human body. And it's ethically free. Like if you're a person that's a vegan and you're doing it for moral purposes, but you recognize the fact that you're not getting the appropriate amount of nutrition, get chickens. If you have a backyard, get some chickens. They lay an egg almost every day. And they're better for you than any egg that you're going to buy in the store from grain-fed chickens. 100%. And you don't have to worry about them being treated horrifically. They just, I mean, I used to have chickens before the fucking coyotes got them all. <laughs> but uh, that was back when I lived in California. It's a long story. But um, it wasn't just the coyotes got them all. It was like the fire burnt the chicken coop down. or We almost lost the house. The fire burnt the chicken coop down. Then we had a smaller chicken coop, and then that one wasn't as robust. I had like a real serious one built by a carpenter. Wow. And then we bought a store-bought one because we had to get a chicken coop quickly, and the coyotes figured out a way to get in it. Hmm. And it was a fucking bloodbath. It was Damn. horrible. Nine chickens destroyed overnight. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, it was it was fucking horrific. Um but those little fucks, they had been targeting <laughs> my chickens for quite a while. Wow. But the, good eating. But the the eggs themselves are so good for you. And again, they're not going to become chickens. These are non fertilized eggs and people need to understand that. And I didn't know that until I was forty by the way. <laughs> How fucking dumb I am. I thought that like if you just like let the, the egg go, it would become a chicken. And then and then someone goes, no, you, they don't even need a rooster to lay that egg. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How could it? Yeah, duh. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> that was before I had chickens. You're making me want to get chickens. Well, listen, it's a great way to have protein. And it's really a great relationship. You know, you uh, I would feed them worms. Uh, I would buy these mealworms, you know, that you would, uh, you, they, they come dried. And I would, like, shake the box of mealworms, and the chickens would just run towards me full clip. Oh, my God. And I would dump them out on the ground. They would go crazy and eat them all. That's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, they, you've never seen um, savagery like a chicken eating a mouse, though. They would occasionally catch a mouse. Holy shit. You think cats are vicious? Cats have nothing on chickens. Have wow. you ever seen a chicken kill a mouse? I've never thought of chickens as like predators. But... Oh boy, I mean, I'm going to show you something. <laughs> Jamie, uh, pull up a video of a, a chicken killing a mouse. There's a there's a bunch of great videos online, but I found this out by accident, and this is how I found out. My my, um, we had a house when I lived in California that had a glass uh, wall, and it used to be like a fence. And then my wife was like, wouldn't it be better if it was like a glass wall and you could see the view? I was like, yeah, that'd be better. So we put this glass wall in it. And unfortunately, the hawks couldn't recognize that it was a glass wall. So they would fucking dive bomb and bang. So it was kind of like karmic justice for whatever mouse they were trying to kill. So they would dive bomb and slam into this glass fence and get knocked out or die. And a couple of them died in my yard. And we were like, fuck. So one of them died before you, before you do this. So one of them died um, 
and then one of them survived and my family i was out of town for the weekend doing stand-up and my family went to a local pet store and got what are called pinkies and pinkies are these little infant mice that they serve to snakes and reptiles and things like that so they got a few of them and fed them to this hawk you know they looked online what do the hawks eat and so the hawk ate all these pinkies and uh, we had to wait until Monday to get the hawk to this uh, wildlife rescue center that takes wow. care and rehabilitates hawks. So one pinky was still alive. And my kids were like, we're going to raise it. I go, listen, you just fed them to this fucking horrible raptor. And now all of a sudden, it's your, this one is going to be your friend. And how traumatized it's going to be. But all his siblings got murdered by this fucking giant dinosaur. Damn. And uh, I said, it's not going to survive. It, it's, it hasn't been weaned by its mother. You know, we, we, we can't. It's not going to live. And it hasn't eaten in days. I'm like, this thing, it's not going to live. I go, I think I'm going to feed it to the chickens. They're like, don't, don't feed the chickens. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I go out into the chicken coop and I put that pinky down and they dive on that thing like nothing I've ever seen in my life. Oh my God. One chicken grabs it. The other chicken is attacking that chicken, <laughs> trying to pull it out of their mouth. Like they instinctively recognize that that's a food source. Wow. So watch this. So this is what happens when chickens see a mouse. Like immediately. Look, oh they God. try to steal it from each other. Savages. Oh my God. I mean, it's like their favorite food. Mice are their favorite food. Holy cow. If you have mice and chickens, the chickens will fuck those mice up. Chickens are, they're creepy little domestic dinosaurs. You're right. I mean, yeah, when you say that, I'm like. I mean, that's what they are. Look, yeah. they're still trying to steal from her. And uh, there's another one where a cat is playing with a mouse. And the chicken's like, let me show you how it's done, bitch. <laughs> and the chicken comes running over and, like, steals the mouse from the cat. Damn. Yeah. Did you see, uh, there's this amazing dinosaur miniseries on Apple TV. No. It's, um, it's so good. And they actually portray raptors as dinosaurs with feathers. Yeah, they think that now. There's yeah. a museum in Montana in Bozeman, and they show you two options of this raptor. They show you one option, like the Jurassic Park version, and then they show you on the other side of this raptor, they have it completely covered in like beautiful colored feathers, wow. just like a chicken, which is most likely the case. Yeah. They think the dinosaurs had feathers. Which makes sense. Fascinating. I mean, the the things we see now. I mean, if you look at an eagle, that's a goddamn dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. that's it right there, oh which God. is really cool looking. Wow. I mean, that's most likely. So Jurassic Park and all those films, they're probably incorrect. This is probably what it looked like. Because they've actually found- Still terrifying. Fossilized <laughs> imprints of feathers with with the fossils of dinosaurs. Wow. They've had the, these these you know, clear indications that feathers existed on these creatures. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. So if anybody wants ethical like uh, guilt-free, karma-free protein that's as good as your body's ever going to get, eggs. Yeah. From I a actually that you raise. Totally. I consider eggs to be a cognitive multivitamin. Actually, because if you consider the fact that when an embryo is developing, the, the central nervous system and the nervous system in general is the first structure to coalesce, right? So an egg yolk literally has everything in it that nature has deemed important to grow a brain. Which is so frustrating when people want to eat egg white omelets. When I go to yeah. a store or a restaurant, I see egg white omelet. I'm like, where's the fucking whole egg? Oh, yeah. Why are you serving egg whites? It's insane. 
it's I mean the the yolk it's like again co- a cognitive multivitamin and it's it's no surprise that uh, egg yolk people are you know like vegans are they they just see red right whenever you say cholesterol whenever they see that like there's cholesterol in a food but right. but it's it, it should be no surprise that an egg yolk is rich in cholesterol because the brain is rich in cholesterol mm. right like despite accounting for only two percent of your body's mass twenty five percent of the cholesterol in your body is located in your brain that doesn't mean that you have to you don't need to eat cholesterol to support brain health your brain produces all the cholesterol it needs it's called de novo cholesterol synthesis but an egg yolk has a little bit of vitamin b12 it's got choline Choline is one of these like crucially important micronutrients that 90% actually the adequate intake for choline is probably less than than what it should be for when you account for our brain's needs but 90% of adults don't consume adequate choline. And acetylcholine is uh, a primary ingredient of many nootropics which there you have go. been shown to improve brain function. Yeah, it's a super important um, neurotransmitter involved in learning and memory and in fact one of the drugs that's prescribed for Alzheimer's disease modulates that uh, that cholinergic sort of pathway. Um, but yeah, choline is crucially important. It's found in, in egg yolks. I think egg yolks maybe is, uh, second place to like beef liver, which is, which is the top source for dietary choline. But again, something that we under consume and studies show that people who consume more choline have reduced risk for, um, dementia and choline is like one of these foods, almost one of these nutrients could almost be considered a surrogate marker for animal protein intake because you find it in both plants and animals, but it's much more concentrated in animal protein. But speaking of which, what do you think about these uh, desiccated supplements of heart and liver and testicles and all these things that you see being sold now? I, I have a friend of mine who is in the medical field, and he's very concerned about this because he's like, I don't know what whether or not these things could contain prions, whether they – like. How are they taking these? Like you're eating beef liver. How is this processed? What What is the source? Like how do you know what's in these things? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we likely consume, our ancestors probably consumed brain early on as a good source of DHA fat, which is one of the most important structural building blocks of the brain, right? Docosahexaenoic acid, DHA fat. And the brain is rich in that. But um but yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a it's a valid concern. Although you know, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't like looked looked into it too deeply. I do think that liver is a great food. It's one of the most nutrient dense foods there is, um, and I do think that there is a little bit of truth, at least in the case of liver, where like supports like. Like we know that beef liver is a top source of choline, right? And we know that choline directly supports liver health um, because it helps to export fat. So choline is actually a good treatment for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease mm. because it helps to get fat out of the liver. So in that way, I think eating liver can support liver health. And the liver is like a crucially, I mean, it's a vital organ, obviously, but it, it plays hundreds of roles in the body. It tastes good, too. You just have to eat, cook it right. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't like the texture. They feel weird about eating it. But once you realize the nutritional value of liver, you know, liver and onions is delicious. Yeah, super tasty. I think like cooking it kind of rare Mm-hmm. Getting a nice sear on the outside. Yeah, yeah. I like cooking it in ghee. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have. I usually uh, use beef tallow. Oh, beef tallow. That's a good option. I actually, um, my thoughts on dairy have evolved kind of recently. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, I I get like on social media, especially like on Instagram, I get a lot of shit from pretty much everybody. Like the vegans don't like me, right? Because I promote animal products. The carnivores don't like me because I'm a big believer in the value of dietary fiber and plant you know, phytochemicals and the like. 
Uh, the evidence-based, like, credentialist community doesn't like me because I'm not a, you know, I don't have any, any credentials after my name. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then the paleo community, because I, I recently have sort of come out sort of not being a huge fan of, like, butter and, and ghee. You know, I'm a huge fan of dairy and dairy fat in general, which dairy fat, so all natural fat-containing foods contain some proportion of saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat, right? So like any natural fat-containing food is going to contain some saturated fat. So demonizing any type of fat, I think, doesn't make any sense. Including right? avocados. Yeah. Avocados are great. Like avocados are mostly monounsaturated fat. I think people should steer clear from, as best they can, the grain and seed oils, like the canola, yeah. corn, soybean. I definitely wanted to talk to you about that because- Controversial. This is, I've been trying to have this conversation with my family because they'll buy salad dressing and say it's healthy. I'm like, do you ever read what's in this shit? I'm like, unless it has olive oil in it, it's probably not good for you. Like these shitty seed oils that they put in these salad dressings. I eat salad with the salad dressing on. I feel like shit. I yeah. feel like bloated. I feel gross. Whereas I eat salad and I just put balsamic vinaigrette and olive oil on it. And I feel great. It feels like, okay, my body likes this. And isn't like just consuming like vegetables by themselves is not as effective as consuming them with some fat. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, a lot of the compounds that we want in, in veggies are fat-soluble. So, I talk a lot about the value of carotenoids. So, carotenoids are like plant pigments. They're responsible generally in the produce section. You'll see uh, yellow produce and orange produce rich in these compounds. And two in particular, um, plant-based carotenoids I've become a big fan of called lutein and zeaxanthin. And they've shown that people, higher consumers of lutein and zeaxanthin have... They, they seem to be protected against uh, cognitive Vision decline. Loss. Vision loss, certainly, yeah. yeah. If you look at any eye supplement, they usually will have um, those two in them because they can help prevent age-related macular degeneration. Yeah. Now, um, what are the criticisms uh, against seed oils uh, specifically? Like, I, I've seen you speak about grape seed oil, which is a really fascinating one because it really wasn't something that was in the human diet until, as you were saying, that winemakers realized, hey, like we could, we're leaving money on the table. Yeah. Well, it's grapeseed. Turn this shit into oil. Yeah. So, again, some industrious uh, entrepreneur saw that as a byproduct of winemaking, you're losing out on all these grapeseeds, right? And grapeseeds are rich in oil, like, like all seeds are, right? And so if you can extract the oil and get rid of the noxious like aromas and, and flavors, then you've got something that you can sell, right? For, for I think it's like a 500 or $600 million a year business, if not more these days. Um, so grapeseed oil, like any of these grain and seed oils, like corn oil, uh, canola oil, which comes from the rapeseed plant, soybean oil, they're referred to sometimes within the food industry as RBD oils, refined, bleached, and deodorized oil. Ugh. Yeah. Um, because they they have like these like again these harsh bitter flavors right mm -hmm. some of them like uh, like the rapeseed contain toxins like urusic acid they might want to change the name of that seed yeah right doesn't it seem like a rude way <laughs> yeah you know you want to murder fruit no <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah like why is it rapeseed exactly okay so um, what it, what's the negative effect of things like like I would imagine that in the human diet consuming uh, an exor exorbitant amount of this kind of grapeseed oil, it's really not even possible. Like, the, how many grapes would you have to eat to get with the seeds to get the kind of 
the amount that you would get from a tablespoon of like grapeseed oil. Yeah, I mean, humans, we don't even like generally, we would, we, we're averse to seeds for a reason. I mean, if you've ever tried to chew into a grape seed, it's bitter, right? You spit it yeah. out. So that's why these oils didn't, they didn't exist in the human food supply before 100 years ago. We hadn't had the chemistry labs, the erector sets required to extract these oils and then run them through all these myriad processes to, to make them to some degree palatable and, and, and able to be utilized by the food industry. They used to be used as engine you know, lubricant yeah. and things like that. that that's in industrialized uh, seed oils have always been used as lubricants for engines. Yeah. So when did they start using them? What is this, Jamie? What did you pull up there? Okay, to produce 237 milliliters, eight ounce fluid bottle of grapeseed oil, one ton of grapes is required. So 2,000 pounds of grapes to get eight ounces of grapeseed oil. The finished oil is light yellowish green in color. Holy shit. That's insane. Well, that there you go. So yeah. if you're cooking in grapeseed oil, you're, you're essentially, it's a crime against nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's the most unnatural thing, and uh, you know, people listening to this might might say, oh, you know, appeal to nature fallacy. What's natural isn't always like arsenic right, is true, but I think that 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 like a platitude like that isn't very helpful, right, in the modern world. So, where... what are the negative effects of things like industrialized seed oils? Yeah. So, um, I mean, for one, they all undergo that step called the deodorization step, which is the step that removes the noxious odors and aromas from these oils, makes them palatable, gives the oil. It's basically the food industry's equivalent of the witness protection program, right? Because it takes an oil and it makes it so bland and, and free of any kind of character, right, that it can be used to roast nuts in. It could be used to make granola bars. It can be used to saute food in in a restaurant. It could be used to fry food in, for example. And the problem is, one, one of the problems with these seed oils is that that deodorization step creates a small but significant amount of trans fats. And we know that there's no safe level of trans fat, artificially, you know, man-made trans fat consumption. Their most uh, recognizable form was in uh, poly, uh, partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, which were outlawed, right, five, six years ago, something like that. Um, but you can still find man-made trans fats on the market in the form of these grain and seed oils. Now, the dose likely makes the poison, as it does with most things, but your average um, American today is over-consuming these oils. Well, I mean, they didn't exist, again, in the human food supply prior to a century ago, and their use has increased anywhere between uh, 250 and 1,000%, 1,000% for soybean oil in particular, which is the most commonly used um, grain and seed oil. And so we're overconsuming these fats. They harbor these trans fats. When we cook with them in particular, when we expose them to high heat, especially for prolonged periods of time, they generate poisons called aldehydes. And some of these aldehydes are really toxic. I mean, they're neurotoxic, they're mutagenic, meaning they're cancer-causing. Um, you know, one such aldehyde is acrolein. Acrolein is found in, in uh, cigarette smoke. Um, it's found in all kinds of industrial pollutants. And we can see it in the brains of people with, with Alzheimer's disease. Like it actually how is it accumulates- produced in cigarettes? Sorry to interrupt, but how, is, how does cigarette smoke produce alkaline? Well, I'm not 100% sure as to how it's produced in cigarette smoke, but it is a byproduct of like the burning of garbage and, you know, it's created in, in myriad industrial processes. Um, so likely, it has something to do with the heat? Probably the heat. And whatever yeah. the plant compound? Heat and oxygen. 
Mm. Yeah, the the coalesce, you know, the the coalescing of heat, oxygen, light. So what about if it's not being heated up? Like what about seed oils as they exist in salad dressings and the like? Well, I think one of the big fears, um, another big fear with regard to these oils is that they might not be acutely inflammatory. So I think a lot of people, um, and this get, this is what tends to get pushed back among the evidence-based crowd on social media, you'll hear claims that these oils are inflammatory. And I think this is more an issue of semantics. They're not acutely inflammatory, but they may be chronically inflammatory because they provide the precursors to our body's inflammation pathways, particularly the omega-6 fats. Omega-3 fats are, generally speaking, anti-inflammatory, right? They're able to convert to compounds called resolvins, which quite literally resolve the inflammatory cascade. But omega-6 fats provide the backbone to these pro-inflammatory signaling molecules in the body, which are responsible for heat, pain, redness, swelling, things like that. And inflammation underlie, you know, it's a process that is not bad, but when it's chronic and low grade, it's associated with, um, you know, all of these chronic conditions that we're talking about, certainly Alzheimer's disease, other forms of dementia, but also cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes and the like. Now, are they gonna actually stimulate an inflammatory response? You know, I don't think so unless maybe the oil is, is highly damaged, but if it's, we'll just say like it's a fresh oil, which none of these oils are fresh because they've right, all undergone- the self shelf forever too. Yeah, in plastic, yeah, right? right. Which is like, I mean, if you look at extra virgin olive oil, you'll, you'll seldom find a good extra virgin olive oil in plastic because right. producers know what they've got. This is like liquid gold, right? Yeah. But these grain and seed oils, you know, they're sitting on the shelf in plastic. They're sitting, uh, you know- with extra virgin olive oil, for example, one of the tips that I offer people when buying extra virgin olive oil, which I think is medicine in many ways to the brain, is you want to buy it in small bottles, right? Small glass, opaque bottles, because extra virgin olive oil, unlike wine, only degrades over time. So there's no like appreciation that occurs with time. The same thing is true for these grain and seed oils, but they sell them in these big tubs, right? We leave them in our warm kitchen environments, and these oils are very prone to a process called oxidation which um, is like essentially a damaged oil, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't see a piece of rotting food on the counter and intuitively think to yourself, that looks good, right? You can't necessarily see it happening in these oils, but nonetheless, we're told over and over again to integrate them into our diets and our, and our lifestyles. So they're easily oxidized. They, um, they provide the raw materials in abundance to our body's inf inf inflammation pathways, right? And we likely consume them in a ratio that was, you know, maybe around four to one, omega-6 to omega-3s, uh, you know, f for most of our evolution. And today we're consuming them, you know, way in a, in a way higher ratio, 25 to 40 to one, omega-6s to omega-3s. So I just don't think that this is like... I like to take the precautionary principle approach, right? These oils, again, they didn't exist in the human food supply, right? I don't have all the data to, to convince the most ardent evidence-based practitioner. I like to say that my approach is evidence-based, but not evidence-bound. I think that we need to be highly skeptical of foods, especially foods and supplements and products that haven't been around all that long, right? This is just a, a mass sort of experiment being laid out on a vast stage. And I don't think that we have the, we don't have good data to say what they are or aren't doing, right, to us necessarily. But I do think that because these oils are so easily oxidized and they're of particular relevance to the brain, right, I think that matters. We don't yet know what they're doing to our brains. Lipid peroxidation is a major feature in the Alzheimer's riddled brain, right? We know that as we consume more of these polyunsaturated fats, 
which again are what predominate these grain and seed oils, these highly easily oxidizable types of fatty acids, right? We know that um, in nature where you see a higher proportion of polyunsaturated fats, you see a higher proportion of vitamin E. Vitamin E literally exists in, exists in nature to protect PUFAs, to protect polyunsaturated fats. We know that your average American is under consuming vitamin E, like 10% of, uh, of Americans consume adequate vitamin E. So as our uh, intake of these polyunsaturated grain and seed oils increases, our need for vitamin C increases, we're not consuming adequate vitamin E. You mean e. vitamin E? Vitamin E, yeah. Yeah, you said C. Um, sorry, vitamin E. And so we're, we're under consuming vitamin E. Um, that's gonna have consequences, right? Because vitamin E, literally its role in the body um, is to pr protect lipids, right, from oxidizing. And, um, and you can look to parts of the world like in Israel. Are you familiar with the Israeli paradox? No. So the Israeli paradox, Israelis do everything right in accordance with what the nutritional and the medical orthodoxy would say to do about nutrition, right? They consume more of these omega-6 dominant grain and seed oils than anywhere, anyone on the planet. You think that we consume a lot of grain and seed oils here in the United States? They consume 10% more. And they Why have- is that? You know, I don't know. It could just be that they're, they're more health conscious. So like mm. healthy user bias- Right. Infuses all of these, which which we could talk about, but like this is a big confounding aspect of of uh, nutritional epidemiology. But in Israel, they consume about ten percent more of these types of oils than we do here in the U.S. And their their health is horrible. They have the same amount of heart disease. They have skyrocketing rates of cancer, right? Um, type two diabetes and the like. But nonetheless, you look at their diets, and they're the picture of like they they, they would be like the prize client of any you know, of these like more orthodox dietitians. So when, if someone does have some sort of salad dressing, should that salad dressing always be stored in the cold? Yeah, so extra virgin olive oil is, I like to say that it's extra virgin olive oil is like the primary oil that I use. I generally, you know, I, I use avocado oil when I'm cooking at very high temperatures, but for the most part, extra virgin olive oil is an oil where you can look at, the entirety of the hierarchy of evidence, and we see that it's beneficial. It's also the oil used in the Mediterranean dietary pattern, which is to suggest that we use any other oil is not an evidence-based recommendation when the Mediterranean dietary pattern is, the, is the, the, the dietary pattern that the medical and nutritional orthodoxy is seemingly in love with for every other reason, right? Mm -hmm. So they exclusively will use extra virgin olive oil. And... Um, and we know that extra virgin olive oil, it's very heat stable. So it's, it's uh, about 15% saturated fat. The rest is monounsaturated fat. You get a tiny proportion of polyunsaturated fat. But the fats in extra virgin olive oil are, they're already chemically stable. And you know the, the small amount of PUFAs in extra virgin olive oil are protected by the, the vast array of antioxidants that extra virgin olive oil contains. Extra virgin olive oil actually has a compound in it called oleocanthal, which is as anti-inflammatory as low-dose ibuprofen. Whoa. Yeah, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. That chronic use of that drug is associated with cardiovascular events and the like. You get all the benefit of like regularly taking an anti-inflammatory drug if you just routinely use extra virgin olive oil. One of my wife's friends told her that olive oil is bad for your vision. Does I, that make any sense? Doesn't make any sense to me. No. Zero. I, I was like, what? Yeah. How, how, where'd you hear that? She's like, that's just what she told me. No. I'm like, okay, I'll, th I'll find out. I'll talk to Matt today. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's pretty good. I mean, it's like from a cardiovascular standpoint, it's a great source of monounsaturated fat. How could is, it be possibly bad for your vision? Is there any you know, pathway that makes any sense to you? 
I think maybe she misread something that was saying that these the grain and seed oils are bad for your vision. I mean, they're you know highly oxidizable, and we know that your eyes are neural tissue, essentially. So it's what's not good for the brain is going to be not good for the eyes and vice versa. So as far as oils that should be put on, say, like salad dressing, like what oils do you feel like are acceptable? I think extra, extra virgin olive oils, primary. Yeah. I think like avocado oil is good, but it's you're missing out on the opportunity to get some of those phytochemicals in olive oil, extra virgin olive oil particularly. What that, is the difference between extra virgin and other olive oils? So extra virgin olive oil is just like you crush olives. That's how you get extra virgin olive oil. And then you protect that oil. The uh, the other types are, um, well, there's filtered and unfiltered extra virgin olive oil. But you generally want to buy filtered. I know some people might see filtered, uh, unfiltered and think that that's the one to buy. Right. Because it's more pure. But actually, what you end up getting with filtered, uh, with sorry, unfiltered oil is little olive microparticles and water, which can accelerate the degradation process of the oil. So you want mm. it to be filtered. Okay. And should you store that in the cold or can it be stored in a you don't closet have to. or a pantry? I no. think just in a, you know, you want to keep it away from the stove, but in general you want to keep it in a, you know, it doesn't have to be refrigerated. But you do want to make sure that you're buying it in glass, darkly colored bottle. And the best extra virgin olive oils are going to have a harvest buy or a, mm. a, sorry, a harvest date on the bottle. Because again, extra virgin olive oil, it's a fresh fruit juice right? Mm -hmm. So it only gets worse over time. So you want to buy the freshest extra virgin olive oil, extra virgin olive oil that you can find. And how long should you keep it for? You want to consume it like as quickly as you can. So I like to buy, if you're like a single person like me, you want to just buy like a small, like as small of a bottle as, as you can find and then use that and then just keep buying those small bottles, right? Mm. If you're a big family and you're using it all the time, like a bigger liter bottle, I think will suffice. But we can look to like, you know, randomized control trials, like the PREDIMED study, which is one of these like seminal nutrition studies because it's a huge population, multi-center trial, um, RCT, that found that when people used a liter of extra virgin olive oil a week in their families, they had profoundly improved cardiovascular health, metabolic health, brain health, and even like, uh, I believe anthropometric features like their, like their waist. Um, wow. Yeah. So if you're consuming salad dressing, it should just be virgin olive oil. Yeah. That's my take. Extra virgin olive that's oil. That's my hot take. And is there anything negative about balsamic vinaigrette? No, balsamic vinaigrette I think is great. Um, first of all, balsamic vinegar, vinegar in general is, uh, acetic acid is the, is the primary uh, ingredient that you'll see across all vinegar variants. And it can help to reduce, um, there's a, uh, it can induce satiety. So actually vinegar is a good, like one of these like foods that's like oddly satiating. Mm. Um, it can reduce uh, postprandial glycemia. So like the blood sugar spike after a meal. Um, really? So vinegar is a great, great food. The balsamic vinegar does have a little bit of sugar in it, but I don't mind. Like I'm not, you know, like I think that the benefits outweigh the risks. And also vinegar, balsamic vinegar has a compound in it. Uh, I forget what the acronym stands for, but the acronym is DMB, so you, people can easily find it. Um, it's one of these like long, complex chemical chemical designations, but uh, that's been shown to actually support gut health, like support the microbiome, particularly for people who consume a lot of red meat, mm. which is awesome. Which I do. I consume like I'm a big advocate for, you know, the consumption of grass-fed beef and things like that. So um, as far as salad goes, um, just extra virgin olive oil. Uh, either balsamic vinaigrette or regular vinegar is is there a benefit to having regular vinegar over balsamic vinaigrette? 
I think only if you're like really counting like counting calories, which I don't endorse. Like that's not you know. I I think balsamic vinegar is great. You also get a little bit of resveratrol in balsamic mm. vinegar because of okay. the yeah. So I think that the the I think balsamic vinegar is great. I happen to love it. And also, people that eat a salad every day. So this is a really cool research from Rush University found that people who eat a big bowl of dark leafy greens every day have brains that perform up to 11 years younger. Wow. Yeah. So this could be like healthy user bias. Like, again, nutrition, even my the recommendations that I make, like, you know, a lot of healthy user bias confounds many um, of these kinds of studies in the world of nutrition because we just don't have many long-term randomized, you know, large right. population, multi-center randomized control trials, right? But the research shows that 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 regular consumers of dark leafy greens. So I like to say like a salad a day. That's what this research found, that um, they have more youthful brains by up to 11 years. And when you actually look at what dark leafy greens have in them, first of all, they're one of the most nutrient-dense foods that we have. I mean, most mo the most nutrient-dense foods that we have access to are going to be animal products, right? But dark leafy greens are up there because they're so calorie sparse, and they are a good source of folate and vitamin C. And we also know that they're one of the best ways to get those carotenoids, like lutein and zeaxanthin, which is not just associated with um, better cognitive aging and lower risk for cognitive decline. But um, in young and healthy college students, they've actually shown that when you give people who are already thought to be at their peak of cognitive prowess supplemental lutein and zeaxanthin, that you see a, a, an improvement by about 25% in visual processing speed. Wow. Yeah, it's a University of Georgia 25%, study. 25%, that's incredible. Yeah. And now, is there any concern about oxalates? I think only if you know that you're sensitive to them. I'm not a... How would one find out? I think if you have like, you know, kidney stones, like in your family, things like that. Like if you are, generally you would know, you know, I think there are genes that play a role in this or if, you know, somebody in your family or if you yourself have had them before, you know, calcium oxalate is what you want to be careful with. But I don't think that like eating a salad a day is going to put you at risk. Is there any benefit of cooking leafy greens versus eating them raw or vice versa? Certain leafy greens can definitely be made more digestible when um, when you cook them. Uh, but, but, you know, there's always like a give or take when you cook or store vegetables. Some micronutrients become more bioavailable, some become less. So um, I tend to recommend, uh, you know, sort of a mix, like a like a like variety, you know, some cooked, some raw, but in general, with the salad recommendation, you know, with dark leafy greens like arugula, kale, spinach, things like that, I, I don't think that spinach is probably the highest with regard to oxalates. So, you know, if you're sensitive to oxalates, um, you know, you might want to cut down on your raw spinach consumption. I used to but, drink uh, kale shakes all the time, and uh, I would mix it with coconut butter and a bunch of other stuff in there and fruit. But then I got concerned about oxalates. Yeah. I just don't think, you know, I think if all you're doing is eating kale day in and day out, like there's a famous uh, case report published in the, in the medical literature of a woman who heard that bok choy could help prevent type 2 diabetes. And so she, ate, she was eating like two kilograms a, a day of raw bok choy. She grew a goiter Whoa. on her neck. But I think most people are not going to, you know, the, I think the benefits outweigh the risk. There are benefits and risks associated with eating anything. So I think each person has to look at each food. And also, I don't believe that there's a one-size-fits-all diet. Like, I think that some people, like, it makes sense to me why some people would do well on carnivore diets, right? right. Um, to me, it's about kind of identifying what foods work best for you, right? Um, 
and even things like you know dietary fiber. Uh, a lot of people say that they have difficulty digesting dietary fiber, but it's not necessarily the problem. A problem with the fiber, you you likely haven't cultivated a microbiome to contend with whatever you know quality or quantity of fibers that you're consuming. So is that if like you make uh, a shift in your diet and then your microbiome does not have enough time to keep up with or adapt to that shift? Yeah, exactly. So people that that from one day to the next will go and just dramatically imp- increase their fiber intake, mm-hmm. which I think sometimes you go on some of these like vegan run social media accounts, they make it seem like fiber is like the only nutrient that like that you need, right? And so a lot of people will then like dramatically increase their fiber intake and that sets them up right off the bat for bloating, gas, like the, you know, all kinds of digestive problems. Um, One of the things that the carnivore people talk about is plant defense chemicals, right? They're, they're always, that's, a, that's a big one. Plants don't want to be eaten the way they, I mean, that's uh, Paul Saladino's claim, yeah. right? What do you think about all that? I mean, I think Paul's very smart. He's a, we're friends, um, but I disagree with him on, uh, on, you know, on that. I think that, you know, a lot of these plant defense compounds have a have a beneficial hormetic effect in right. us. the The issue is if you're if you don't re- react to them well, is it a problem with the the compounds themselves, or is it a problem? Maybe you've got some degree of gut dysbiosis, right? You've mm. you've lost some degree of gut resilience to be able to to be able to reap the full benefit from those types of compounds, right? I think that this. I mean, it makes a lot of sense today, right? We live in a time where there's widespread gut dysbiosis, gut problems, problems with the microbiome, right? Where, you know, many people are born uh, via C-section, for example, which medically is certainly indicated in some in in some instances, right? But they're not being breastfed, overuse of antibiotics, and we live in a society, especially over the past two years, that's become overly obsessed with, you know, what I call hygiene theater. And so, you know, I think that that, that we've lost a bit of resilience in our gut, and so that can sometimes affect how we, you know, whether or not we're able to reap benefit from these compounds that are to some degree toxic, right? But in a robust system, that to- that quote-unquote toxicity fosters anti-fragility, right? If your system is already robust, then putting a little bit of stress into the system, that's going to foster anti-fragility, which is a concept that I love, right? Making mm-hmm. yourself harder to kill, which I think is a great sort of way to frame, you know, your, your, your wellness, like nutritional approach, right? But if you have you know, uh, an impaired microbiome, for example, or if your gut mucosa has become degraded, which is sort of this like demilitarized zone between your gut lumen and your gut epithelium, right? If that's become degraded over time. And what would cause that to become degraded? Well, generally it's caused by not consuming enough fiber because we see that when you don't consume enough dietary fiber over time, the bacteria, certain species of bacteria in your gut will actually eat the mucin, that comprises this this gut mucosa that sort of acts, you know, it's like this sort of bacteria-free zone um, in your large intestine that separates your the interior contents of your gut and your gut microbiome from your epithelium. Does that balance out if, say, if someone does try to incorporate a carnivore diet or maybe even uh, a version of the ketogenic diet that eschews plant protein or plant matter? Are you? Does that eventually bounce back? I mean, is that like a temporary effect where this bacteria searches for fiber, doesn't find it anymore, and then attacks the mucous membrane? Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely complicated. Um, and I'm, I, you know, my understanding is that uh, sometimes the root cause of these problems can be bacterial overgrowth. Um, and so, when you do an elimination diet like 
a carnivore diet, for example, you starve out the bad bacteria, right? And so you can kind of create like a milieu that's then that ultimately then becomes more friendly to the reintroduction of these kinds of fibers, mm. at which point you can start to build up, you know, that resilience and that and that mucosa again. I think that the the carnivore diet's a really great like can be a great short term therapeutic diet. Um but uh, but again, I think like running around being afraid of like these these plant quote unquote toxins. The evidence on the consumption of fruits, like if fruits and vegetables were really trying to kill us, they're doing a terrible job. Like, well, I don't think anyone's saying fruits are trying to kill us, other than like there's yeah, arsenic fair. and apple seeds and things like that. Right? Fair, fair, fair. It's really they're talking about vegetables. plants. Yeah, yeah. But the but the research on them suggests that people who consume more tend to live longer. Now, I'm not like I, I definitely advocate for like. Both, you know, and I'm a big mm -hmm. animal protein, you know, and I, and I think that like people have different tolerances to different vegetables. Right? right. I know somebody who if he's in the same room as an allium, which is like garlic, leeks, shallots, onions and things like that. Uh, you know, he's just like he has to quarantine himself for a different reason, you know. Really? Um, so it's a, everybody's different. The hormetic effect totally makes sense if you take into consideration other hormetic effects that we accept as being beneficial like the sauna. Yeah. Or like a cold plunge, things along those lines where your body is reacting to this intruder or this uh, invasion of uh, excess heat or cold and producing this beneficial effect to the overall body. Yeah, I totally, I mean, I totally agree with that as well. I mean, I'm a huge fan of sauna, um, especially with regard to dementia prevention. If you use a sauna two to three times a week, you slash your risk of developing dementia by 22%. Wow. Four to seven times per week, 65%. Wow. There's not a drug on the market that is going to slash your risk of developing dementia by 65%. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, and what is the protocol? Well, they do this research, which is actually really great that they do it in Finland. The University of Eastern Finland is where a lot of this, this good sauna data comes from. Um, and they generally do it, yeah, I mean, on a daily basis. I think the key is to do it for as long as you can do it to to get to that feeling of discomfort you know you want it to be a stress on the body and then and then you leave and then you do it again i think generally that's the the that seems to be like the traditional protocol there and when you say feeling discomfort like how deep into the discomfort well what i do is i actually i'll put my fingers on my on the radial artery in my wrist and um and you know sometimes you can get a sense that like your body is having a mild aerobic exercise session right yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's only so much of that that you can take with the between the sweating and um, your heart rate is increased. Uh, you get to you get you get this like feeling of um, dysphoria that that like washes over you. And I mean, sometimes I there's a sauna that I go to sometimes in L.A. gets up to like 225 degrees. Oh, you go to a Russian bathhouse? Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't pull, they don't play around. They don't play around. Yeah. And I literally sometimes I, I say to myself, wow, I feel like I'm dying and I'm probably in that moment actually dying yeah you know yeah that's the whole key yeah yeah i mean that's that's the the argument against the uh this thing about a hormetic effect of uh leafy greens so the most favorable sauna duration and temperature associated with lower dementia risk were five to 14 minutes per session at a temperature of 80 to 99 degrees celsius yeah what is that in fahrenheit that's fucking high mm. 99 degrees celsius is like 220 degrees right yeah uh, higher temperatures over 100 degrees Celsius were, in fact, associated with an elevated risk for dementia. Okay, so if you go too hard, 
Yeah, I I I took my sauna temperature down a little bit. I was at 189 degrees for 25 minutes, and I took it down to 185. Or, well, it was at 189 for 25 minutes, and I took it down to 185 for 20. Because hmm. I was just I was so exhausted when yeah. I get out of there at 189. I was like, I think I'm fucking myself up. <laughs> and Ed, when hanging out with Laird Hamilton, unfortunately, that psycho. <laughs> He uh, he gets it up to 220 degrees, and he puts oven mitts on, and he gets on an Airdyne bike in the sauna. Wow. Yeah, he goes hard. Got to uh, hit, hit different at that. Well, I also think you have to take into consideration whether or not he does a cold plunge first. Because if you do a cold plunge first, 185 degrees is not just tolerable. It feels great. So I go from the cold plunge, which uh, at home I have this uh, Morosco Forge which is 34 degrees, and here I have a blue cube hmm. at the studio, which is great, and it is uh, it goes to 37 degrees, so it's just slightly warmer. It's freezing as fuck, but it's also circulating, so it circulates almost like a river. That makes it even colder. Oh, it's death. You sit in that fucking thing. It sucks, <laughs> but um, it's really easy to go from that into the sauna at 185 degrees. You go into the sauna at 185, it feels like it's... It's nice. It's yeah. like, ah, uh, so what would be torturing you normally is like really easy to tolerate for long periods of time. So generally I do a 20-minute session at 185 degrees and it's rough. Then I go into the cold plunge for three minutes and it's easy. Not The cold plunge is not easy, but it's easy to go back into the sauna. The cold plunge sucks no matter what. <laughs> it's, it's like slightly easier for the first few seconds if you come out of the sauna. But very quickly, your body's freezing. Oh, man. Yeah. And so then I do three minutes in the cold plunge and then back into the sauna, and 20 minutes goes by like nothing. Hmm. I mean, I, I get to 25, 30 minutes, and I feel still feel fine. It's just starting to suck a little bit, and then I go into the cold plunge for an additional two minutes, and I finish it off cold. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the cold plunge is like a state change for me. I love it. Yeah. But you acclimate, you know, over time, especially with the sauna. Like, he's been doing that, like, uh, the whatever, the assault bike. Mm -hmm. Is he doing that in the sauna? Yeah. The assault bike is like, I mean, that's torture. He's a psycho. Yeah. But he's also in incredible health for, I mean, how old is Laird? I believe he's 56 or 57. He looks fantastic. He's surfing every day. You know, I mean, he's the pinnacle of health and so de 58 years old. Wow. I was actually drinking his coffee uh, in here. He has a turmeric uh, coffee. I mean, look at the guy. He's yeah, fucking he's a great stud. Yeah. And just really uh, well-versed in the benefits of all these different anti-inflammatory compounds. His Laird Superfood coffee is what we have in the uh, – I don't. did you get one of those? I'll get, that's is that just, what I'm drinking here? That's no? just Black uh, Rifle. That's Black Coffee. We use, his, we use Black Rifle coffee in his machine, but his machine combines that with coconut oil and turmeric oh, wow. and all these – Different compounds, cacao. There's all these different things. I'll give you one. We'll yeah, leave. dude, I'm but down. It's, it's great. But um, so Laird, uh, his protocols. Like, I, I'm not sure if he goes in the cold plunge first. If he goes in the cold plunge first, then it kind of makes sense that he can get in that sauna and ride that air dye machine at, at that at such a high temperature. Nuts. Because I was doing it for a while, but I I actually burned my throat. <laughs> I was uh, my old studio. I had I was cranking it up to 205. And I was doing like 20 minutes. And when I'd get out of there, I mean, I would lie down on my jujitsu mats like I just got shot. I was so tired. 
and I was starting to like, <laughs> like my throat was burning, and I was like, Jesus wow. Christ, I'm cooking myself like a brisket. Like this is not smart. Wow. Like I need to take this down a notch. And so. <laughs> Over time, my experimentation has gotten me to this place of 185 degrees for 20 minutes. Seems to be just uncomfortable enough. Mm. And that's what I did today. So I do 185 and then three. And if I have to time, I do an additional 20 plus minutes in the sauna after that and then another cold plunge. Hmm. But I always end on cold. Yeah, I mean, there's probably an effect where just being in it longer and like you're able to be in it longer when it's at a lower temperature is, yeah. is beneficial. Um, it's still pretty hot. Yeah. 185 is still pretty hot. It's like when I got up to like 190-ish, it's like it just was... It just felt like I was too tired afterwards. I'm like, this can't be good. Like, I'm too worn out. Like, yeah. And I'd come in here and I'd be like struggling. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way too. Yeah. After like uh, repeated bouts of like the, the Russian, like Banya that I do in LA sometimes mm -hmm. and the cold plunge. Yeah. I do mean, they beat you with the, the leaves? What's it called? Plaza or something? I don't know. I've never, I've never had that done. It's a little too intense. But I love it. I'm obsessed with sauna. I think it's great. I think the I think the real bang for your buck comes from like the fact that it is uh, an aerobic exercise mimetic, right? So mm -hmm. it's like the best workout that you can get while sitting still. Yes, that's amazing. I think what it does for your blood pressure is amazing because we already right like we already uh, talked about the fact that blood, having you know normal blood pressure is key to keeping your to keeping your brain healthy. And there was actually also a risk reduction from the same lab at University of Eastern Finland showing you that stroke risk is reduced. Mm -hmm. um, well, it was a 40% decrease in all-cause mortality for four, four times a week, 20 minutes a day. And I think they, their protocol was like, I think they said 175 degrees. Yeah. And that's what they used. And the thing about, like, Finland is the sauna capital of the world, which mm -hmm. is why I love that the research has been done there. Because if you were to do that here, it would be a perfect illustration of healthy user bias, right? Right. Because people who have access to saunas here are probably also, well, they're going to the gym regularly, right. right? They're probably mindful of what they put in their bodies. There, in Finland, you've got, on average, one sauna per household. Right. So it's like taking a shower. So you kind of, like, control automatically for all those different, you know, um, confounding, potentially confounding variables in Finland. And, and for them, it's such a smart way to, like, manage the cold weather. Yeah, that too. Because it changes what, like, what cold is to you. Have you been to Finland? No, I've never been. Oh, you should go. I would love to. There's a place in Helsinki. I'm going to butcher its pronunciation, but it's called Loili or something. And it's like the most beautiful saunas you've ever seen in your life right on like this. Uh, it's like right on the water. So mm. you get out of the sauna and then you go dip into whatever sea mm. that is over there. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. It's so great. Yeah. It's... Um I, I think it's one of the most important things that I do. And I do it right after cardio, too, so it maintains my high heart rate. So, like, today I did uh, I do a kettlebell workout, and then I do the Airdyne bike. So I go from the Airdyne bike right into the sauna. And uh, I'm already sweating and exhausted, and my, my heart's already pounding as I get in there. And it's 185 degrees. Wow. And my heart rate just stays compounding. It yeah. stays pounding. You're a beast. Well, it's just I'm just trying not to die. Yeah. I'm <laughs> trying to maintain. I'm 55 now, so it's like, I've the the one thing that I've sh that's shown to me uh, to really have a benefit on the way I feel, other than exercise, the way I I've just my overall like sense of well being in my body is sauna and the cold plunge combination. It's really had a significant effect. So great. One thing that I think that people I've been talking about this a bit recently on social media that. Uh, I think it's actually pretty important that um, that nobody I've haven't seen anybody else talking about this, but how detrimental uh, frequent use of antiseptic mouthwash can be, really, particularly post workout. 
Really? So I go to a gym and there's mouthwash, like in the you know like in the cleanup area, mm-hmm. and I look at all the people swishing with mouthwash after after a workout, and I'm like, you're you're hurting your gains by doing that post workout. Really? How so? So some of the so obviously blood pressure, you know, we've, we've hit on it a few times, but um, when we eat foods that are rich in compounds called nitrates, like beets, arugula, arugula is the top source, calorie for calorie. Um, dark leafy greens in general, great source of these compounds called nitrates, right? Sometimes you'll see supplements like on the market that are like nitrate, like, you know, beetroot powder, right? To boost nitric oxide in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We rely on oral bacteria, our oral microbiome to reduce nitrate from our produce to nitrite. Reducing means that they, it removes, uh, these bacteria remove an oxygen molecule. And it's that nitrite that enters the nitric oxide pathway to boost nitric oxide, which has this, the overall effect of reducing blood pressure and increasing blood flow, right? Right, which is why all these post-workout or pre-workout supplements have that in it. Yeah, exactly. But if you um, frequently swish with antiseptic mouthwash, so not all mouthwashes, but alcohol-based um, bactericidal uh, mouthwash, you're nuking indiscriminately the bacteria in your mouth that are pivotal, critical in that pathway. Does that same effect happen from the consumption of alcohol, like consumption of whiskey or tequila or something like that? It definitely changes the microbiome. Um, It it probably has an effect. we know that, I mean, alcohol is something that does have some degree of benefit, right? If it's like a stress-relieving tool for you, if, it, if you use it as a social lubricant. But in general, we know that ethanol is a neurotoxin and that alcohol inflames the gut. It drives um, the translocation of, of endotoxin from the gut into circulation. People who even moderately consume alcohol um, have uh, accelerated uh, shrinkage in the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. So... You know, I think I think alcohol is one of these things where, like, you know, if you have a healthy relationship with it and you drink infrequently, I think it's fine. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, I don't know exactly, you know, if it's like I don't think that research has been done yet. Um, like what a, what a transient uh, bit of alcohol, but we do know that this bacteria is on the tongue. So presumably, if the alcohol is sliding down your tongue, right? Right then it's going to have an effect. Yeah, it has to. Yeah. And when you're talking about these mouthwashes uh, post-workout, um, so is it specifically post-workout, or is there a time ever where those mouthwashes are not dangerous? What do you got there, Jamie? So post-workout. Mouthwash could inhibit the benefit of exor- exercise. Re- results show blood pressure-lowering effect of exercise was, was diminished by more than 60%. Yeah. Over the first hour of recovery, that's incredible. Yeah. And absent two hours after exercise when antibacterial mouthwash was used. Holy shit. Yeah. 40% of the U.S. population uses antiseptic mouthwash every day. What about gum? Gum? Uh, it depends. You know, if it's, not, if it's not changing the oral microbiome, um, significant. Everything you eat is going to change the microbiome to some degree. Right. But we, just, we don't want to nuke the good bacteria that we want for this nitric oxide pathway. Well, when you have like a gum that like freshens your breath or, yeah. you know, mint, is that what it's doing? Is it is it nuking the microbiome of your mouth? I mean, I, this is, I mean, highly controversial. I personally choose to avoid artificial sweeteners and I know a lot of these gums have artificial sweeteners in mm. them. Um, the, you know, there is some data suggesting that it might change the, the, the gut microbiome, right? Artificial sweeteners. Now, in terms of gum, you're not necessarily consuming the artificial sweetener, but the artificial sweetener is there in your mouth. Right. 
I have no data. This is just I'm in speculation territory here, but um, but you know I think that it, it, it conceivably might have an effect, but I don't think that that research has been done yet. Now, when someone uses toothpaste, especially toothpaste with fluoride, yeah, does that have a detrimental effect? I mean, I personally avoid fluoride, and fluoride does have a, a, a antiseptic effect as well. It has a bactericidal effect as well. So if you if you uh, rather work out and then brush your teeth with yeah. fluoride-based toothpaste afterwards, would that have a similar effect as this mouthwash? Conceivably, research hasn't wow. been done, but I would, I would, that would be my hypothesis. Yeah. No, but what about a non-fluoride based, like a Tom's of Maine natural type of uh, toothpaste? That's what I use. I mean, the tooth, the toothpaste that I use, I, I look for nano hydroxy apatite. I don't know if you've ever talked about that here on, on the podcast, but that's a, that's sort of a fluoride alternative that they've been using in Japan for some time. That has been that has shown, um, to have a, a remineralizing effect on par with fluoride. Um, but hydroxyapatite is a fully natural, our bones are made of hydroxyapatite, our teeth are made of hydroxyapatite. Mm. So it's totally natural. It doesn't have any endocrine disrupting potential the way that fluoride does. Fluoride is, a, is also a suspected endocrine disruptor, um, which I think is not good. But it also has- What does that mean? That it can affect your hormones. So endocrine, dis I mean, endocrine disrupting compounds are everywhere. We're exposed to 1,400 different hormone scrambling compounds on a, on a daily basis. And um, and fluoride is one of them. BPA, so it scrambles your endocrine system. It could, if you. In, I mean, we ingest fluoride in the drinking water sometimes. There's this debate. I mean, typically with toxins, you get what's called uh, a dose effect, right? The dose makes the poison. That's right. sort of like one of the hallmark platitudes mm -hmm. in the field of toxicology. But the reason why endocrine disruptors are so treacherous and so difficult to study is they possess what's called a non-monotonic dose response. So you might have increasing uh, risk of a certain effect with a higher dose with these endocrine disrupting compounds, but you might have a completely different effect at a low dose. So that's what makes them tricky, tricky to study, mm. and 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 um, and also you know just treacherous in general in terms of their you know their effects on our health. And I imagine it would be cumulative. Like this is not something you'd see a significant change in your body immediately. It'd be like a slow burn. Yeah, you never know. I mean, the Environmental Working Group found that you know umbilical cord has between two and two and three hundred different industrial chemicals, like waste products, in umbilical in a in a population representative sampling of 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 fetuses. Mm. Um, that there's like BPA, right, in umbilical, like bisphenol A, which is a known xenoestrogen, right? We've known for 100 years at this point that it acts like estrogen in the body, and it's everywhere. These are like the the everywhere chemicals. I mean, you had yeah. an expert on the show talking about how it's, you know, reducing the anogenital distance in, in males. Yeah, Dr. Shanna Swan, the yeah. book is Countdown, and it's all about uh, phthalates. Yeah, these compounds are everywhere. Bisphenol A is, is a super common one. Any Anytime you're drinking out of plastic, if it doesn't have bisphenol A, it's going to have bisphenol S, generally, unless it says no bisphenols, which is rare. Meanwhile, you have a bottle of water right yeah. there. Yeah. Well, you know, you can't... <laughs> unfortunately, well, unfortunately... There's a metal... That's a steel glass of water if you want to That's what that. I should have been drinking at. Yeah. yeah. We have uh, a filter machine, and we we switched out from bottles of water a few years ago to this. Smart. Yeah, it just seems like a smart thing to do. Yeah. But um, but going back to the mouthwash, I mean, they've done studies that show that frequent users, so just to be clear, this is two or more times per day 
of antiseptic mouthwash have a 50% increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes and a doubling of risk for the development of hypertension, which Holy is high blood pressure. shit. From just using mouthwash. That's insane. Yeah. And it's antiseptic. The, that's an observational study. So correlation doesn't equal causation. Just have to you know mention that. But in this exercise study, they used a, a prescription antiseptic mouthwash called chlorhexidine. And... You know, so it's like it's it's clear that people who are using mouthwash regularly are seeing, uh, you know, a, a health impingement as a result. Now, what is there a non-antiseptic mouthwash? Is there something that makes your breath smell good that's beneficial or not negative? I think you know they have like xylitol-based uh, mouthwashes that I, I believe are selectively, you know, antiseptic. But I, you know, I believe that um, good oral health like shouldn't require much more than flossing regularly, brushing, you know, with, with something that like doesn't have like, you know, fluoride in it and also eating a diet, like a biologically appropriate diet. Right. Mm. I mean, grains and grain products are the worst thing for your dental health. Right. Like, and if you think about it, an animal in the wild without its teeth is quickly a dead animal. Yeah. Right. So I think that whatever's going to be good for the oral microbiome is going to be good for systemic health and vice versa. And so grain products, refined grains, added sugars, I mean, these are the worst foods, right? Like anything that's going to cause um, any any kind of like sh- starch dominant food product that is easily retained in our in the gum line, major driver of, of cavities. I want to talk about that, but I, or about grains, but I want to also talk about fluoride. Like why is it even in the water? Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, that's a that's a good question. I don't know, but isn't the whole idea about it it's supposed to like stop tooth decay? I think I think there is some yeah I think there's some truth to that, but I don't think that why our widespread tooth decay is due to a lack of fluoride. I think it's more due to the fact that our diets have become aberrant. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'll tell you, I haven't used uh, fluoride toothpaste in some time, and I when I was a kid, I was the kind of kid that every time I would every time I would go to a dentist there would be a new cavity. I just like would always dread going to the dentist because like there would always be something for them to fill. Yeah. And ever since I demoted grains and, and grain products, you know, to the occasional indulgence in my diet, right? I, I haven't had like a single ca- cavity. That's an anecdote, certainly, but um, but I think it's it's not like a mystery why these kinds of things develop, why we, why we have tooth decay. It's just yeah. that we just eat crap, you know, we eat crap all the time. It's shocking how good grains taste. Yeah. That's what sucks. What sucks is like I am just a gigantic fan of pasta and bread. I don't eat it very often, but when I do, I fucking love it. And it's, you know, it's the occasional thing for me now. And after I eat it, I feel like shit. But it's amazing how good it feels while you're consuming it. Like what is that pathway? Like what's going on in your brain where like a plate of lasagna is so damn rewarding? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think I think what it is is that these kinds of foods tend to have that quality known as hyperpalatability. They tend to bring together, you know, sugar, whether it's like the sugar in the tomato sauce, wheat flour, fat, copious fat, mm. amounts of fat, salt, right? Yeah. I mean, these foods typify the standard American diet. Yeah. And these are the kinds of foods that now we consume by the majority, 60% of our calories now come from these kinds of foods, ultra-processed foods or these hyper-palatable mixed foods, mixed dishes, like the lasagnas, the pizzas, the burgers, and things like that. I'm sure you saw that chart that was recently published where they rated the nutritional benefits of food. 
I shared it. Is the food compass? Uh, please tell people about this. Oh my god, it's so great! Is it on your Instagram? Yeah, it's at the top. I pinned it at the top of my Instagram. It's at so Max crazy. Yeah, so Tufts University, and I recently had a conversation with a principal investigator, and I, I believe that our conversation was had out of good faith, and he he was interested in hearing my perspective. Yeah, so I shared this. Watermelon, good. Kale, good. Uh, I agree with that. Watermelon's great, right? Watermelon is tasty. I don't know about kale being on the same. <laughs> Why is kale and watermelon together? Because watermelon has all that sugar in it and also seeds. If you eat the seeds, that's not good, right? This, I mean, basically what this, this was a, a, an attempt by researchers at Tufts University to create a food, uh, a nutrient profiling system. This isn't right. the first, right? There's actually a profiling system that was devised in Latin America called the NOVA profiling system, which I actually am a fan of. It ranks foods in accordance with how processed they are, which I think is like actually quite important, can be quite useful in the context of, this, of the standard American diet with an obese population. But this is uh, the Tufts attempt, and we can clearly see that it underweights protein, and it doesn't properly penalize foods for being ultra-processed. Let's uh, read it out because there's people that are just listening. So Tufts, uh, they made this chart with three different color systems, green to be encouraged, yellow to be moderated, and red to be minimized. <laughs> So frosted mini wheats, which is sugar on top of grain, is at 87, and it is in the green to be encouraged. Whereas ground beef is the lowest yeah. at 26, which is to be minimized. But ground beef is just protein and fat. Yeah. It's really generally healthy for you. Yeah, 100%. But, but what studies can they point to that say ground beef... Is to be minimized. And look at a boiled egg. Like, yeah. that's just egg. Just an egg. Right. And and what comes in higher, right? You see egg substitute fried in vegetable oil comes in higher than just a boiled egg. It's so crazy. It's backwards. Egg substitute fried in vegetable oil is 62. Right. That's so nuts. So nuts. Because what the fuck is an egg substitute? Skinless chicken breast, 61. Honey nut Cheerios, 76. How the fuck is that real? Yeah, I mean, they, they basically, um, they score it in accordance with this this formula that they've developed where, you know, they'll give a certain amount of points for protein, a certain amount of points yeah. for fiber, micronutrients, but they clearly, they clearly don't properly penalize foods for being ultra-processed, right? Right. Um, honey Nut Cheerios. I mean, ultra-processed foods, Joe, are... Every 10% increase in ultra-processed ultra food consumption associated with a 14% increased risk of early mortality. Every 10% increase in ultra-processed food consumption associated with a 25% increased risk for dementia, recently published research, right? So this, this chart clearly is, a, is, in my view, right, and, and, and a, until I'm convinced otherwise, an instrument designed to sell ultra-processed food, right? Put it back up, Jamie. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a... So look at this. There's another thing that I wanted to point out here because this, this is so nuts. Orange juice with calcium. Here's something <laughs> that people need to understand. Orange juice is just sugar water. Yeah. It's got some vitamins in it, but it's just sugar water. If you want an orange, eat a fucking orange. Eat an orange. It's self-limiting. Yeah. I have a friend, and they, I, they, they ordered fresh-squeezed orange juice. Like, oh, as long as it's got the pulp in it. I'm like, listen, man, that's just your body is not, doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. If you're drinking 16 ounces of orange juice, 
that that is a jolt of sugar to your system that's not that different than a glass of Coca-Cola. 100%. Yeah, it's I mean it's mind-boggling. Also, it's like that chart doesn't take into account context, right? Like it doesn't take into account the fact that as we mentioned, 50% of the population it's almost 50% of the population that that's obese, right? Yeah. Half of the population is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. So it has some degree of glucose intolerance. And you're going to say that that's like that orange juice is a healthy choice for somebody who has essentially glucose intolerance. Right. Because they're insulin resistant. But it's so unnatural to drink a juice like that. Yeah. And that's what people need to understand. It's like when you're eating a fruit, you, that's how it's designed by nature to be consumed. You're getting all of the fiber. You're eating the, the tissue of the, of the fruit. You're eating everything. That's like you eat an apple. You're supposed to eat an apple. Apple juice is so crazy. Like, uh, my kids were at Disneyland, and uh, they got an apple juice. And I said, can I see that? <laughs> and I looked at it. it. It was like fucking 29 grams of sugar. I'm like, that is so crazy. You just get this jolt of sugar to your system. I mean, if one thing, if you just did a crazy CrossFit workout and your fucking legs are buckling, and you want to get a, a jolt of glucose in your system, okay, have an apple juice. But for just a regular person to consume apple juice, you're thinking you're drinking something healthy, and it's just a trick. Yeah. It's, I mean, it really is absurd. And it's like, you know, whether we're talking about the, the you know, the, the Alzheimer's paper that was that was fraudulent or this, which, you know, I don't think that there's any malice like behind this. I, I really don't. But it's just ignorance. Yeah. And also conflicts of interest. Like, did right. you, there was a paper that came out recently that found that among the... Uh, the, the, the people called on by the 2020 Dietary Guidelines for Americans Committee, like those committee members, 95% of them had conflicts of interest with pharma, with the food industry, right? Like General Mills, Kraft, AstraZeneca, right? Mm. Those are the people coming up with our dietary guidelines, right? So they're not going to say minimize like your consumption of ultra processed foods because the food industry would never let them. Not only that, you ever look at those folks? <laughs> that's another part of the problem the people that are recommending health choices they all look like shit yeah like that woman Barbara Ferrer the woman who is locking down Los Angeles oh my god that poor lady yeah. like go outside I don't know what you're eating but eat something different like that lady looks terrible and to have someone like the Belgian Minister of Health have you ever seen that lady no never seen that lady oh buckle up <laughs> buckle up for this one I don't know what the fuck Belgium's up to but this just this is like, it's a joke. It's like a punchline to a joke. Oh, my God. Like, this is absolutely the last person you should be taking any health advice from. Oh, God. Imagine. Yeah, that's what? the Belgian health minister. She's morbidly obese. Yeah. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I mean, That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. A vegan diet is unhealthy and dangerous for infants. Well, well I, I agree, agree with that. that. <laughs> oh, she's right. She's like a broken clock. Yeah. Right yeah. twice a day. A broken, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Not digital clocks, by the way. No. They're never right. <laughs> it's a, I'm happy that she said that, though. Yeah. That's a, that's a big issue. Well, that is a big issue. There was a, uh, a woman recently that was uh, jailed because her child died um, from malnutrition because uh, she was feeding it a, a vegan diet. Hmm. I mean, I don't know what the fuck she was giving her baby, but no, it's terrible. It's uh, I just actually became a became an uncle. My my uh, little brother uh, had the we have the first baby in the family, a little girl, and um, I'm learning about like you know breast breastfeeding and all the things, mm -hmm. right? 
But uh, what's interesting is that their pediatrician told us that like he, he, he'll often see vegan moms come in and they, they're suffering from crazy like osteoporosis and, and like, you know, low bone mineral density because like the mammary tissue doesn't care what the, mo- like the mammary tissue just wants to make the best milk possible. It doesn't care if the woman, if the, if the mother's getting it from her diet. If not, it'll take the nutrients from the, from the mom. Right. Right. So take it from the bones and the muscle. Of the mother, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the brain, Oof. right? For the DHA, fat, if need be. Oh. And so- they, uh, That's what they call mommy brain. Mm. Yeah. That yeah. and lack of sleep. Oh, man. Yeah. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is glyphosate. There was a, a recent study that showed that glyphosate appeared and see if you can find um, what the actual numbers were. But it was a shocking number of people's bodies contain glyphosate in mm. them, which is Roundup, which is uh, an herbicide that when you talk about people consuming large amounts of vegetables and large amounts of grains, one thing to take into consideration when you're dealing with monocrop agriculture is the use of pesticides. Yikes. Disturbing weed killer ingredient tied to cancer found in 80% yeah. of U.S. urine samples. Now, immediately upon publishing this, I went on to Twitter and I saw this shill for these um, herbicide companies that was talking about, oh, it's just a minimal amount, <laughs> a tiny amount of parts per million. You can't even find it if you're looking for it. Nothing to see here. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's poison. There's zero amount of that that should be in your body. When it's in 80% of the U.S. population, like, how bad is that? Yeah, I mean, you've got these like apologists for the right. f- whether it's the food industry or the cosmetic industry. The guy in particular that I'm talking about has he was wildly and just defending this, but he's completely connected to these companies, and and people were pointing it out. Like you have been paid for by these companies. Like you you are in the pocket of these companies. Yeah, I mean, we know that it's a it's an endocrine disruptor. It's it is bactericidal, right? Like I mean, it's it's a it's an it's a it's an antibiotic essentially, um, and you know I don't th- to be honest, like glyphosate is something that like you're reducing your risk if you're eating more animal products, right? Like it's very it's it's abundantly found in grains, GMO products, and things like that. GMO products are actually bred to be GMO so that they can right. withstand heavy spraying. It's used as a glyphosate is used as a desiccant. Um, quite strongly in fact on like oats and oat products and things like that and Uh, is there a way to clean these things before you use them to filter out glyphosate or is it something that's just a part of the the grain yeah it's a good question i mean i think soaking and rinsing like produce well with regard to grain i'm not sure um with regard to produce i do think that there's a there's both an effect with like rinsing and, and like soaking in particular um, in vinegar and salt and or salt, vinegar and or salt um, and uh, and cooking. I think it, I don't think it's a very heat stable compound, but I'm not, you know, like I think people should, should avoid it. Like, right. I, like I generally, if I'm eating the skin, this is, I mean, personally, there's online, I mean, I'm sure you've seen, but the debate between like whether or not organic is, is better for you than non-organic 
nutritionally, like in terms of micronutrients, there's no real difference. You'll see higher levels of certain micronutrients um, in organic, and you'll see higher levels of certain, like for example, nitrates in, in non-organic um, produce, right? So you can't really say that one is more nutritious than the other. Studies do show, obviously aside from reducing your exposure to glyphosate and other petroleum-based um, herbicides and pesticides, you're reducing your exposure potentially to heavy metals. There was a meta-analysis that found 50 per, redu, uh, cadmium levels were reduced by 50% in organic produce as compared to um, conventional. And then you see higher levels of these like plant, quote-unquote, defense compounds in organic um, produce. Which, uh, depending on you know where you stand on these plant defense compounds, I mean, likely you know I think provide benefit um, to uh, to human health. That's the hormetic effect. That we were That's like about the earlier. the hormetic effect, yeah. Um, and so these these genetically modified uh, organisms, these GMOs, these plants that are designed to be able to tolerate glyphosate, how are they doing that? Like, what is happening to these plants? What are they doing to the plant that allows them to spray this toxic shit all over them and they keep growing? Yeah. You know, I I wish I can give like a, I could give like a really sort of like buttoned up informed answer. I'm not I'm not 100% sure. What I will say is that uh, there's only a small handful of, of crops that are GMO. Like it's there's only like 10 crops that are GMO. You know, sometimes you'll see like non-GMO asparagus, but asparagus was like never GMO, you know. But it's the it's it's generally I believe it's it's soy it's corn. It's like saying gluten free milk. Gluten free milk, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're GMO primarily. I think to be able to withstand heavy spraying by these chemicals. And again, precautionary principle. Like I think the less there is around, the the better. I mean, people will say that it's like the most heavily studied, you know, herbicide in history. You know, but um, also causes cancer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like I'm yeah I'm. I would rather reduce my exposure to that and, uh, you know, and, and yeah, it's just like, it's fair that not everything that's natural is good for you. Not everything that's unnatural is bad for you, but like, I'm not going to put like my health in the hands of Monsanto, which I, which is now Bayer, I think after yes. they, they purchased it. Right. But like those companies don't give a, don't give a fuck about, right. about your health. Right. And when you do finally get sick, there's no recourse. Like right. who's going to be there? Right, and right? and also correlation does not equal causation. They have, you have to prove that this is what caused your illness. Yeah, and there's this complex situation that we have here, where we have these enormous cities that have millions and millions of people, and you have to feed these people. Mm. And monocrop agriculture is the most efficient way to provide these people with produce. And monocrop agriculture with herbicides is the most efficient way to grow agriculture. <sighs> and yeah. it's like, it's so complex and so difficult to get out of because all these people that are proponents of regenerative farming, whenever I ask them if it's scalable, they always do this like, yeah, <laughs> like, well, fucking it's never been done. Like, yeah. when you're talking about being able to provide grass fed beef, for 330 million people show me right show me how you can provide organic produce to 330 million people show me no it's not po it's not possible right. and that's that's true you know like grass fed grass grass finishing and feeding and finishing beef on on the on open pastures i mean that takes a ton of land yeah right but not everybody First of all, not everybody's going to choose to eat the way that I 
Max Lugavere recommends right. eating, right? Like people have their own preferences, their cultural yeah. mores and things like that, right? Um, but today, I mean, that's why that's where I think it's another another area where the like the vegan the argument for veganism like falls short is that if you're partaking in in modern society, if you're shopping in a modern supermarket, there's blood on your hands, right? There's like nobody is is. Uh, inculcated from the fact that today like modern plant whether it's modern plant agriculture or modern uh, animal agriculture like animals and people are being exploited right it's doing a number on the environment and the i mean if you really want to be like live the most sustainable uh and and quote-unquote regenerative lifestyle i mean you're going to be growing your own Yes, and that really is probably the only option. Yeah, growing your own produce and doing it in the way where you're making your own compost and harvesting your own eggs, like you were doing. Yeah, that's probably the best way. But you know, obviously, if you live in a city, that's a giant problem. Yeah, and if you don't have the financial resources or the land, that's a giant problem because if you want to grow a significant amount of fruits and vegetables, you you're going to need some land. Yeah, but also like. Sickness is massively environmentally taxing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a massive resource sink. And the nutrition and the calories and, you know, what you get from beef is, you know, you get a lot more in a much smaller package, right? Like one cow can feed a family. And I'm not like an environmental expert or an expert in agriculture, but I know that one cow can feed a family for months, Yeah, right? Two months, something like that. Easily. And so if you're looking to if you're looking to reduce the area under the curve for suffering, for environmental damage, it makes a lot more sense to me that you would, you know, lean in on you know, lean into animal agriculture. Also, animal agriculture in regards to grass fed, grass finished beef, you're talking about an animal that has free range. Because that's the only way they can consume that much grass. They have to be in these open pastures. They they get to roam around. They're not contained in pens because that wouldn't be efficient. They move around. And the ones that use regenerative agriculture, the benefit to that is they use the manure. And the manure helps grow more plants. And it helps they use it as fertilizer. It also helps the... The, the 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 richness of the soil and keeps the the soil maintaining yeah which so, is so important because topsoil in this country is like really fucked especially in these monocrop agriculture environments they're pouring nitrogen on the soil and all sorts of other uh, industrial fertilizers they're trying to use just in order to allow, the, allow these plants to have the nutrients to grow oh my god but they've determined that this topsoil in these uh farmlands has been minerally deficient for a long time. Well, that's why our produce is becoming less nutritious over yes. time. Our produce is actually developing its own form of plant obesity, if you can imagine that. So there's a, a few potential reasons for this, but it's it's been referred to as the ionome. The, 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 the sum total nutritional value of our plants has declined over the past 50 years by about 8% on average. Some nutrients, you know, we see greater nutrient loss. Um, others we see we see less. But in general, whether it's uh, increased levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? Which is like a plant's food, right? It's causing plants to develop more starch, less protein, which is going to have a, a net effect on the population that eats those plants, right? More starch, less protein. That's fascinating. So it's the increased level of carbon in the atmosphere is damaging to plants. Because we've always heard that carbon, dio- carbon dioxide is what a plant consumes and they, they produce oxygen with that. Yeah. Well, it's like... It's a ratio. Yeah, you're increasing the availability of what plants consume, 
Wow. Yeah. I never would have thought about it that way. I uh, I wrote about this in my second book, um, The Genius Life, but generally, yeah. And th- so it's, it's the confluence of factors, right? It's like what we're doing to the soil. It's the fact that there's more carbon in the atmosphere. So the pl- our plants are actually becoming less nutritious in terms of their micronutrients, but also the macronutrients are are being depleted as well, right? We're diluting protein in the plants. And when that happens, when you dilute protein, I mean, you're going to have an effect on... I mean, we don't, we don't, we haven't yet been able to quantify it, but um, but when you dilute protein, right, in an organism, you're you're reducing the amount of amino acids, you're increasing the amount of energy that you're giving that animal. Um, that potentially could be a recipe for you know for for obesity. Yeah, the, the, or a the, contributing factor. At the least. argument that always drives me nuts um, when people talk about um, like uh, what is and what is not sustainable. You know, this is this is what people always want to discuss. Like when you discuss, like you should eat grass-fed beef. You should eat. Well, that's not sustainable. But I think your argument is best in that most people are not going to listen anyway. Yeah, they're just not. But if you're listening and you're a person who's really taking the the, you really are taking this information in, and you're really trying to make steps to have an overall better metabolic health and overall just to, to, you want your body to function better. You can't think about sustaining the entire world. Right. Like, it sounds fucked, but we're on a sinking ship, kids. Okay? And you're alive. So you have choices to make right now with your life. And if you're listening to this, like, this is the argument that people always said to me, like, when I talk about how I hunt. And I, one of the reasons why I hunt is because it's healthier meat and because uh, I just want, I want a more ethical relationship to food. And they're like, well, everybody can hunt. Well, guess what? They're not gonna. You know, most people are not going to hike miles and miles into the mountains. They're not, they're not cardiovascularly fit enough to do it. They don't have the training to do it. They they they, they don't have the motivation to do it. They they wouldn't be able to in they wouldn't be able to execute in the in the actual moment of choice. You know, like the, the the difficult moment of truth when you have to pull the trigger or release an arrow. They're going to fuck it up. Yeah. So they're not going to survive. So that's not what we're saying. But what we're saying for the people that do want to take these steps and are motivated to change their life for the better. There are options available that are better for your overall metabolic health, they're better for your mind, they're better for literally better for the environment, for everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I you know, I think that um it would be immoral for a physician, right, sitting across from a sick person to have their guidance be in, informed by anything other than what's going to be best for, for that, that person. person, right? Yeah. If you're a physician and you're considering what's going to be best for the planet, right? Now, you could say, well, Max, he's an asshole. He doesn't care about the planet. I absolutely do care about the planet. I absolutely do care about animal welfare. But when if you're sitting across the table from somebody who's sick or you're broadcasting a message to, to a sick population, right? You have a responsibility to that population, right? right. To that person. And so... For me, my number one priority is to personally eat and to recommend to people what, in my estimation, is going to be the best to avert these kinds of conditions, right? And I'll tell you that my mom, my mom, I'll never know what what was causal with regard to what she had developed, but, you know, she was a, she was basically vegetarian. She never ate red meat. My mom was actually very much uh, attuned to messaging surrounding heart disease. She was always afraid of developing heart disease. Mm. So she ate a very low saturated fat diet. She also cared about animals. So she never ate red meat. She never ate eggs. She ate whatever grain product she saw in the market, in the supermarket that had the red heart healthy logo on it. That, you know, that would end up in the, in the, in the shopping cart. 
We always had the corn oil by the stove, again, with the red Heart Healthy logo mm. on it. Always had that. Never any butter in my fridge. Always margarine in those, in those tubs. Th- 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 that's the kind of food that I grew up consuming because my mom was very much attuned to like what the orthodoxy said about heart disease at the time. And she didn't have the internet, of course, to, you know, to, for exposure to like right. dissenting opinions on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, my, my hypothesis is not to, not to like, you know, blame her in any sense, but I do think that like, you know, had she had integrated some of these more nutrient dense foods, more minimally processed foods into her diet, that it would have protected her to some degree. Well, if, if your assertion is correct in terms of like preventing Alzheimer's, it seems like all those things were negative, like all the things she's doing, the margarine, the grains, the, you yeah. know, other than junky fast food. Yeah. My mom wasn't a big, my mom wasn't a big fast food consumer. Um, and, you know, this is a, like, all I have is like retrospective, like looking back and, and, and kind of trying to ascertain, you know, how she lived, you know, while I was exposed to it. It's not that my, you know, she had it like she was following any particular diet or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, she was a big animal, animal rights advocate, lots of grain products, um, not a ton of protein. Like, you know, occasionally she would eat like lean skinless chicken breast, you know, or a piece of fish, but, um, but was always like very, very concerned about like cholesterol and things like that. So I do think that like, that's a dietary, that's, that is like the standard American diet. You know, that is to me, um, what, you know, how not to eat if you want to protect your brain over time based on like all the research that I've done since then. And it sucks because so many people think it's the way to eat to be healthy. Yeah. And it's, it's such an uphill battle to try to convince those people in order to try to have a conversation with them. When someone says, what about cholesterol? You're not worried about your cholesterol? I just always like, oh, where do I go with this? This is such a long conversation to have with a person that has this orthodox opinion that's been kind of drilled in their head by the food pyramid and by all the scare tactics that people have heard about. We, well, we've talked about this before in the podcast, but it bears repeating how uh, saturated fat was the, the whole uh, more fraud by the sugar companies and that these sugar companies literally bribed scientists to lie about what was causing heart disease. And they started blaming it on saturated fat and tried to try to take the blame off of sugar. Absolutely. Yeah. There was that, um, you're referring to the 1967 JAMA paper, right? That was was seemingly the nail in the coffin on the issue as to whether or not it was sugar or saturated fat that drove the epidemic of heart disease that we were seeing in the, you know, mid-century. And the Sugar Research Foundation paid each of those scientists $48,000, equivalent of today's money, to basically say that it wasn't sugar that was the problem. It was saturated fat. It's such a small number, and it fucked <laughs> millions of people. So many. But it's yeah. like, you know, money, these, these personalities, right? These, like, the, the, the obstinate territorialism. Yeah. Um, and Ansel Keys, who really is, like, thought to be the father of the diet heart hypothesis, was, like, this very, you see this all the time, like, this very overbearing personality, right? That's, like, that's a, uh, the way that they, the same way that they described in the science article Sylvain Lesney, the guy who, you know, who renewed uh, vigor for the amyloid hypothesis. It's, like, you know, they have these, like, they have, like, this celebrity and, and charisma. First of all, any, having any charisma as a scientist, you're going to go places, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because so many of them have like, zero. Have zero, you <laughs> right. know? Um, so, yeah, so it's a, it's a big problem. And saturated fat, I think, is like, you know, the, the plant-based community and, and still, the, you know, much of the medical orthodoxy are myopically focused on 
LDL cholesterol. Specifically now, I think it's it's pivoting a little bit to ApoB, so all ApoB-containing lipoproteins. But you know, when you take out red meat from your diet, for example, yeah, your ApoB or your LDL cholesterol might be a little bit lower, right? But you're not. That's not a risk-free swap, right? You're removing from your diet a rich source of highly bioavailable micronutrients like vitamin B12, like zinc, like creatine, which supports brain energy metabolism, like carnosine, which helps to support healthy, you know, blood sugar regulation in the body. And of course, protein, like, like an amazing pristine source of highly um, bioavailable, highly digestible protein. So like to be myopically focused on these single marker indicators of you know related to cardiovascular risk i think doesn't make any doesn't make any sense no it doesn't make any sense but people don't know that information and when they hear about ldl cholesterol or hdl cholesterol they don't know what's good and what's bad and why is one bad and why is one good and that's a misnomer isn't it that like one is good cholesterol and one is bad cholesterol yeah so i mean neither are good or bad um hdl has long been considered the good cholesterol because when it's elevated it's associated with better health right um, Why is that? Well, it's probably reflective of good health. It's it's not necessarily causal because they've actually engineered drugs to raise HDL and it does nothing um, in terms of uh, reducing cardiovascular disease risk. So usually, what I, I think that the current thinking is that HDL is more reflective of good health. So if it's if it's high, you know, it shows that you're doing something right. So you want it to be high. Um, LDL is a little more complicated. It can, it's responsive to, you know, there are many different things that it's responsive to, but primarily certain types of saturated fatty acids. So when you hear on social media, for example, that saturated fat is bad, that's pseudoscience because a fat isn't a fat. The same way that protein isn't protein, carbs aren't necessarily carbs, you know, like they're all like underneath those umbrella terms. Um, there are different types that determine how we respond biologically to them. So when it comes to saturated fat, I mean, you've got different kinds of saturated fatty acids. One type of saturated fatty acid that's actually elevated in grass-fed, grass-finished beef um, is stearic acid. Steer, named for cows, actually has a neutral effect, doesn't, doesn't increase uh, levels of LDL cholesterol, and actually might improve functioning of the mitochondria. So we can't just say that saturated fat is bad. Also, in dairy... Dairy is one of these things where when you look observationally, people who consume full-fat dairy, not even low-fat or reduced-fat dairy, have better cardiovascular health, better metabolic health. And dairy, proportionally, has more saturated fat than any other fat source, right? Because as I mentioned, all natural fat-containing foods have some proportion of saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat. If you look at beef fat, tallow, it's about 50% monounsaturated fat some small proportion of polyunsaturated fat, and then some, you know, minor, again, minority proportion of saturated fat. But dairy is actually mostly saturated fat. So you'd think that if saturated fat was this like dietary boogeyman, right, that consumer, regular consumers of dairy, people consume a lot of dairy fat, would have the worst cardiovascular health. And that's not what we see. We see the exact opposite. Now, how do you feel about raw dairy versus homogenized or pasteurized dairy? Great question. So raw... I'm not actually, um, I, I'm not actually, to me, the dairy doesn't necessarily have to be raw. And when we look observationally, you know, raw is not something that's factored in because the vast majority of people are not consuming raw dairy. Right. Um, but we do see that full fat dairy is, is quite healthful. Well, low fat dairy is pretty nasty. 
I think that low fat, so here's the deal with dairy. I think that low fat is often confounded by the fact that low fat dairy products are often ultra processed dairy products yeah. that have added sugar in it. I yeah. don't think it's necessarily the removal of dairy fat that make it healthier. They add sugar to just to make it palatable. Exactly. It's fucking nasty. Yeah. It's weird. It's like dirty water. Yeah. I regularly consume, I mean, I consume full fat dairy products. I put heavy cream in my coffee every day, um, which I think is, I love heavy cream. It's uh, fat soluble, so or it's fat, so it helps to make the fat soluble polyphenols in coffee more bioavailable. It doesn't have any proteins, really? so it's not going to bind those polyphenols. And also, also, it's better for you to have full fat dairy. Full fat heavy cream, yeah, I love full fat heavy cream. Um, is there any benefit to raw dairy? I think, I mean, they say that the there are enzymes in it that mm-hmm. are supportive. Um, I don't know how, like, you know, how much science there is on that on that recommendation. Um, you know, I will if if it if it's available to me, I buy raw dairy, but it's not something that I necessarily go out of my way uh, to find. Um, I do, you know, I think it's it's probably better to consume it raw, right? Like, but I, you it's know, natural, yeah. Um, because the the opposite of that is like it's ex- it's exposed to heat, and dairy has fat in it. It's got got some component of or some proportion of polyunsaturated fats, which are heat sensitive. Um, so you know, you want to protect those fats generally. Um, and a baby consuming breast milk, I mean, that breast milk is raw milk, right? Obviously. Right. So, but the one thing about dairy that I think is worth talking about is that it's thought that the reason why we don't there, that we don't, um, necessarily exhibit the predicted effect that you would expect based on the, the high proportion of saturated fat in dairy is thought to the fact that dairy is, is attributed to the fact that dairy contains something called milk fat globule membrane. So I know it's like kind of a mouthful. But milk fat globule membrane is basically the lipoprotein in dairy that keeps the dairy fats perfectly suspended. It's like an emulsifier. So that dairy, which is mostly water, milk is mostly water, right? The fats don't actually float to the top. It's like perfectly, the fats are perfectly dispersed throughout. So the triglycerides in dairy fat are wrapped up in a bubble. And this bubble is called milk fat globule membrane. And it's made up of actually some really healthy compounds like phosphatidylcholine, which choline we talked about, you know, and its benefit to the brain. There's also uh, a little bit of sphingomyelin in dairy, in full fat dairy, which is a core component to myelin, the myelin sheath in our brains that help insulate neurons. And if you think about like the purpose that dairy serves for a neonate, it's to help grow a brain. I mean, it's like the whole body's growing, but primarily the brain is the organ that's under like the most rapid growth and organization. And so it makes perfect sense that dairy would have uh, components in it that are like really beneficial when it comes to brain health. And so, um, so yeah, so I think that full fat dairy is, is, uh, is really quite beneficial. But when you look at a, a dairy product like butter, interestingly, when you um, feed a person, if you were to feed a person both uh, heavy cream followed by butter, you'd see that butter actually leads to an adverse effect on blood lipids. Whereas heavy cream doesn't. And butter is just made from heavy cream, right? It's like churned cream. Mm -hmm. But the churning disrupts this membrane, this lipoprotein called milk fat globule membrane. And I think that's why it's, that's why butter can have this like negative effect on blood lipids. So actually when I, when I discovered this, when I realized this, it uh, caused me to actually demote butter to be more of like a YOLO food, more of like an indulgence food. Interesting. Um, yeah. So explain this adverse effect and like wh- how is it measured? Yeah. So butter and heavy cream are both the same 
foundational right. ingredient, right? But when you, and actually, if you were to put heavy cream in coffee, the cream would easily like would 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 uh, just disperse throughout the coffee, right? Butter sits at the top, mm-hmm. right? So you can clearly see that chemically something has changed after it gets churned and becomes the food product that we know and love and call butter. So the milk fat globule membrane, which is present in full fat heavy cream and other dairy products, it's thought to that that actually is like quite beneficial from the standpoint of brain health, um, but also affects how we um, metabolize the fats um, in dairy. So in clinical trials, what they've shown is that you can feed somebody this controlled for fat calories, right? You can feed somebody dairy cream and it won't have any effect on their LDL cholesterol, right? If you feed somebody butter, it will. You'll see an elevation of LDL cholesterol. And I'm not, you know, I don't believe that we should do everything we can to get our LDL as low as possible. Because again, like foods that are that are generally very beneficial and healthful, like, you know, grass-fed red meat and things like that, eggs, um, the benefits outweigh the risk. But with butter, I think potentially you're causing an elevation of your LDL cholesterol and ultimately your ApoB for no real reason. Butter is not a very nutrient dense food. You know, you get a little bit of vitamin A in it, retinol, which is, you know, not bad, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, so butter can have this negative effect that, that you don't see in other dairy products. So for me, dairy is great. It's just that butter is one of these dairy products that, um, I think, you know, especially if you're prone to hypercholesterolemia, if you're prone to elevated levels of like LDL, ApoB, um, it might serve you to, to reduce your consumption of butter. Is there any benefit to, or have there have there been a study comparing grass-fed butter to uh, butter from cows that eat grains? Because it looks very different. Yeah, grass-fed butter is a rich, much more yellow butter. Yeah, whereas like milk or a grain-fed butter is like it's almost white. Yeah, because probably because there's a higher proportion of carotenoids um, in the butter. But um, in general, I wouldn't, you know. I think that butter can be great. Like there's, again, like vitamin A, there's these carotenoids, there's CLA, there's butyrate, there's all these like interesting vitamin K2 in butter, which are, you know, which are significant and they're, and you know, that's great. But if you are, um, you know, for example, if you have hyper, if you have familial hypercholesterolemia, which many people do, um, or if, you know, it's just, it's just one of these foods that like I would not consume as liberally as say, I'm consuming like the heavy cream or or full fat Greek yogurt or even fat free Greek yogurt, which is a great like high protein food. Um, but yeah, always. I mean, you're always going to get higher nutrient density when a cow eats its biologically appropriate diet. Um, also, you know, when a cow is grass finished versus grain finished, it's a leaner animal. Like I know you love to like hunt, right? Like wild game is way leaner than a modern cow, particularly a grain finished cow. Yeah, it's a completely different thing. Completely different thing. So to me, that says something about the relative like proportion of fatty acids that we're meant to consume, right? Like, Sure. So, Well, that's one of the weird things is that we've become accustomed to the taste of a sick cow. Yeah. Because that's what grass-fed versus grain-fed is. When you see a grain-fed cow and it's heavily marbled, like I don't like Wagyu or Kobe beef. Like when people offer, oh, we have Kobe beef. Like that thing's dead. That's a not just dead now, but I mean, while it was alive, it's fucked. Yeah. Like you look at all that fat in the the tissue. That's not normal. 
What you get a grain-fed steak and compare it to a grass-fed steak, first of all, the grass-fed steak is a darker color. It's a richer, darker color. There's far less fat on it, and it tastes different. It's like a healthier animal, too, because they're wandering around in these, these pastures, so they're using their muscle tissue. And so that muscle tissue is more dense. It's chewier. But, you know, people like it tender. But that's, that's not normal. No. Like, if you eat an elk steak, that fucker is, that's dense. You know, and you have to cook it appropriately. Like you have to cook it at a low temperature until it reaches an internal temperature, and then you sear it on the outside. That's the best way to cook it. Oh yeah, these like grain finished cows. I mean, they're loaded, or the the wagyu's yeah. specifically. It's that's that's called intramyocellular lipid. Like you only get that if you're diabetes, right? right. If you've got type two diabetes and obesity. How like, do they do grass fed wagyu? Because I've seen that too, and it looks good. That's a good question. How are you doing? Is it like a specific breed of cow that they're doing that just generally retains more fat? Yeah. I mean, sometimes don't they put like ports into the cow's, like one of the cow's stomachs? That's that's from that, um, was that Food Inc? Where they they talked about that? That's that's from animals that are eating grains and Mm. they develop like abscesses and real problems and they, they have to ventilate their stomachs because of all the gases. Oh, God. Yeah. Not good. No. Not good. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely, definitely huge fan of like you know the the grass finish, but also I think it's important, and this is something that like that I you know I think one of the reasons why people gravitate to my to my content is that like I'm I try to be as non dogmatic as possible, and um and even for somebody who doesn't have access to the most pristine beef that I have access to living in Los Angeles, you know. Like even and I and I, I hate to promote the factory farm system because it's terrible and I, you know, it's like an animal holocaust every day. It's like worse, but still, for somebody like living in a quote unquote food desert that doesn't have access to the kind of beef that I have access to, um, that's you know still going to be a better option for dinner than boxed mac and cheese. Yeah, you know. And what a cow eats determines mainly the content, the nutritional value of its fat, right? So if you don't have access to the most pristine beef, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, just you can go slightly leaner, you know, because that's like that's generally like um, a way a way to circumvent that, you know, because what the grass like grass-fed grass like it doesn't make any sense to eat grass-fed, grass-finished filet mignon because a filet mignon is a lean piece of meat, right? right. But if we're talking about a ribeye or ground beef, yeah, it does make sense to buy a leaner to buy leaner beef because, um, because you're just you know sort of skimming off like what's what is ultimately determined by what a cow eats. Even if grass-fed filet mignon, wouldn't you be getting a healthier piece of meat? Probably, but uh, I w- I'm not sure how I would quantify that. They're both lean, grass-fed yeah. and grain-fed, and the protein fed. is still pristine, and it's really just the fat. Like for example, the difference between grass finished and grain finished, you get about five times the omega-3s in grass finished. Beef in general is not a great omega-3 source, so just to put that out there, um, you're getting just in absolute terms a much smaller amount of omega-3 fatty acids as you would get from a piece of salmon, for example, but still five times the omega-3s as compared to uh, grain finished. You're getting three times the vitamin E, which we know is super important to help protect the fats that are already in your body. We need vitamin E. Vitamin E is crucially important. You get much less fewer fat calories overall. And of the saturated fat, you're getting a higher proportion of stearic acid, which we know is actually quite beneficial. So 
I do think that it's probably uh, healthier to consume, you know, but that none of none of those um, features are really going to matter if the meat is super lean. Right. Because like, we're talking primarily about like it's fat. Mm. It's fat content. Well, we certainly covered a lot. Is there anything else you'd like to bring up? Oh, man. Anything else you think needs to be discussed? You know, I just, um, I love educating people and helping people sort of Clearly. separate. Yeah, fact from fiction. It's, I think it's my life's purpose. You know, like I really feel like aligned with what I'm, with what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm super excited for uh, the documentary, um, Little Empty Boxes. Again, littleemptyboxes.com. I host my own podcast called The Genius Life, which I love to do. Um, I love to bring on like, you know, dissenting opinions and, and kind of like expose my audience to as broad array of, of perspectives as Have possible. Have you had debates with vegans? Um, you know, I haven't primarily because I don't think that debates are a good platform. I don't think that or they- discussions, do. I should say. Yeah. I do sometimes, yeah. Like, but not, not on the, some on the podcast, yeah. As long as they're not um, annoying, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. But no, I've uh, I d I've definitely had um, experts on the show who lean more, lean more plant based. I just, you know, after doing all the interviews that I've done, what I what I've seen is that, you know, you bring on somebody who's like a medical doctor and you ask them about nutrition, and they start opining as if they're authorities on nutrition because they're medical doctors. And most of them are unaware even of their own biases, yeah. which I think is a big problem. You know, I had somebody on the podcast who, uh, she's a lovely woman, um, purports to be like a, a nutrition expert um, from uh, from like Indian, an Indian background, right? And like, generally I know like if you're from an Indian background, like you're not going to be super pro beef, you know, it's just right. like not in the culture. And that came out like in the in the interview that that she was like anti meat and like leans more leans more plant based and so you know I, I see it the podcast not as a platform for me to like debate people I'm not like one of those because at the end of the day like I think something that I'm really passionate about or I know that I'm really passionate about is is fostering scientific literacy like you know I don't really call myself like an expert other people have called me that and and I'll you know like I'll, I'll take it if that's if that's what you perceive from me but. Really, I mean, I hope to be, I think, for people a role model. Because at the end of the day, I was just a guy who stood up because his mom was sick. And I think this is something that we all experience, right? But I, you know, whether it's my upbringing or, you know, the the, the fortuitous sort of first job that I had in, in college, you know, I felt out of college, I felt uh, entitled to, to answers and to like reaching out to people. And um, of course, along the journey, I realized I had an aptitude for aggregating and, and assimilating and communicating science but um but i want people to like do the research for themselves and like you know to to always be willing to challenge their own assumptions and beliefs about things right because you you know people these days they watch a netflix documentary and they they their whole they throw their whole diet yeah into upheaval and it's like a huge pro i think it does harm like it does harm and nobody's talking about this well, not only that, there's quite a few Netflix documentaries, one that gets brought up all the time that's full of shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like the, most of what they talk about is just factually inaccurate, and they don't take into account bioavailability. They don't take into account many factors that contribute to poor health from these diets that they're promoting, particularly vegan diets. Yeah. And, I mean, what percentage of people that start vegan diets wind up e eating meat at some point in time? I think it's something like 84%. Oh yeah, it's huge. I think, you know, there's like this 
I think, you know, like, I probably agree. There's more that we agree on than what we disagree on. And and I think primarily people, you know, like one of the things that I that I really hope people take away from this is to reduce their consumption of these ultra-processed foods, you know, that for some reason or another made it to the top of the food compass <laughs> um, nutrient profiling system. But essentially, like, you know, ultra-processed foods, we know that when you tend to uh, make them what you, you know, the, when you make them the bulk of your diet, they drive their own overconsumption. Like we tend to overconsume them because they have this quality of being hyper palatable and hypo satiating. And what makes a food satiating, there are three factors that make a food satiating. One, it's protein content. Protein is the most satiating macronutrient. So like a lot of people that are struggling with being overweight, they go to their doctors and they get, you know, told this like advice, this like cookie cutter advice to just eat less and move more, right? So they focus on the quantity of what they're eating, right? Like how much they're eating. But what so few people understand, unfortunately today, is that what you eat determines how much you eat. And so by focusing on protein, right? Protein is the most satiating macronutrient. We know we need it. It fosters resilience and robustness, frailty. There was a study that came out recently that found that among people who are genetically at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, it was the frailty that determined by threefold um, who was going to who was going to develop it or not basically so you were protected the stronger the more robust and resilient you were resistance training all that stuff obviously plays a role but protein you know regularly reaching for high quality protein i think is crucially crucially important and the best you know the highest quality protein comes from animal products if you're eating enough protein you know quality becomes less of an issue so you know if you're on a plant-based diet vegan diet just make sure that you're getting enough protein but it's that's hard to do without protein supplements and we know that plant-based protein powders harbor heavy metals so there's all these factors that like that come into play that i think about you know day to day um the second factor that makes a food satiating is fiber it's fiber content and that's not because we have some innate need for fiber but because it mechanically stretches out the stomach and we do see you know thanks to meta-analyses and such that fiber consumption is associated with longevity reduced inflammation and things like that um, but you want to, you know, make sure that you're reaching for foods that, that contain fiber, fibrous vegetables, right? And then the third factor that makes a food satiating is its water content. Water, you know, before we had access to running water, right, like we would either look for water on the savannah or whatever, or we would eat food because food, by and large, provides water, right? Like produce, even animal products are a good source of hydration. Um, like uh, I have a cat. My cat gets its hydration primarily from the meat that it eats, mm. you know? And so when you look at ultra-processed foods, they're depleted of all three of those features, right? They're, wa they're dehydrated mm -hmm. because water impedes shelf stability. They lack fiber. They lack protein. They lack protein primarily because protein is expensive, right? Protein has high margins. So it actually, from a bottom line perspective, it makes sense why the powers that be would want to deplete our food environment of protein, right? I mean, some people will say, oh, they're making us weak. I think it's just like, bottom line, right? Like it's like rapidly digested carbohydrates are just cheap to produce, right? Now we're seeing this flood on the market of all these like fake meat products, which is another thing that I talk about all the time, like on my podcast. Like it's the, the it's like the, the food equivalent of it's, uh, it's human pet food is what I, is, is how I refer to it. Basically it's no different than like kibble made for humans. Right. And, um, and these are the kinds of foods that like yield big exits because they're proprietary formulas. Like there's obviously profit to be made in meat and dairy and things like that, but you don't get the kinds of like, you know, proprietary formulations that you get 
with these like plant-based products that then like go public and have these like huge company valuations. Well, the good news is they're sinking because people aren't buying them because they're disgusting. Yeah. And also people have uh, seen the studies. You know, there, there was the one study about uh, plant-based meat and with rats. So I'm sure you saw that. That what rat like rats develop liver damage? Oof! Have you seen it? See if we can find that. It's like these things are they're filled with seed oils. Yeah, that's what these plant based. That's what like what they're trying to do is they're trying to emulate what a burger looks and tastes like, which is so strange. It's like, are you opposed to burgers or not? Because <laughs> why you have why do you have a fake one? Like I, yeah. ne- I never understood like fake chicken and and then now fake beef. Just if you want to eat vegetables, eat fucking vegetables. Don't do that. 100%. Or eat meat. Like, they're not nutritionally equivalent. The oh. carbon footprint of producing these things is massive. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, we don't even know. But um, here it is. Rat feeding studies suggest the impossible burger may not be safe to eat. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, of course, it's fucking impossible. So, uh, soy, sell that, say that word. Where is it? A protein, a plant-based impossible burger contains a protein called soy... Leg hemoglobin? Leg hemoglobin, derived from genetically modified yeast. The company recently added another GMO ingredient, soy protein from genetically modified soybeans. Tests conducted by Moms Across America found the impossible burger tests positive for residues of glyphosate. Yeah, there you go. Shocker! The levels of glyphosate detected in the impossible burger by Health Research Institute laboratories were 11 times higher than the non-GMO... Project verified Beyond Burger. In 2015, the Food and Drug Administration denied the product GRAS status, which is generally recognized as safe. But in 2017, it issued a no questions letter, not assuring safety, but protecting the FDA from liability if adverse effects are found. Oh, God. Fuck off. But you see how it works is that, like, for this to be good for you, beef has to be bad for you. Right. Right? For, for Oatly to be good for you, Regular milk, real milk has to be bad for you. Right. Right. They, they have to create this, this, uh, this divide, right. essentially, right? Like for sunblock to be good for you, right? The sun has to be bad for you. Right. Right. And it's a big problem. It's why people are so sick. It's why people are so sick. That's the thing. I've said, you know, the, the problem with following the science is that the science follows the money. It's a it's a massive it's a massive scam. And that's why I think like, yeah, you can show me all the data you want. But, like, the longer a food or a product has been around, I think the safer we can assume that it is and the less time it's been around, right? I think the, the greater scrutiny. I'm not saying that they're all bad, right? right? Like, if I need medical assistance, I'm going to a hospital, right? right. If I'm in, like, crazy pain for whatever reason. You're not going to go to a witch doctor? I'm not going to go to a witch doctor, <laughs> no. So I'm not, I'm not anti-medicine or anything right. like that. If I had that blockbuster drug or whatever to give my mom, I would have given to her in a heartbeat, you know? Right. But, um, but it's just, like... These kinds of conditions take years, if not decades, to manifest, right? Right. Like that's what's important to note. Yeah. Like you're 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 not dealing with something that's gonna show an adverse effect instantaneously. You're gonna deal with an accumulative effect over time that's gonna be detrimental to people that take this thing that has been approved because of money, not because it's effective or generally beneficial to your health. But because a bunch of people have been paid off and there's so much of that. There's so much of that where these these people that give their opinions on these things have been bought and paid for. 
Hundred percent, and that's why it's so important to have people like you out there. And I, I'm very happy that you're you're doing what you're doing, and I'm very happy that you get that message out there so people understand. Like, there's a lot of factors involved in what's recommended and what what people consume, and that stupid food compass, all this nonsense. It's like there's so much of that that is absolutely provable provably not beneficial to your health that are, these things are being recommended and it's nuts 100 percent. so thank you max thank, thank you, you joe thank you matt you're you're a very important person I, I really i think your your podcast is great your your videos that you put out are great and you know i think it's uh it's so nice how well informed you are and reasonable and the way you distribute the information it's excellent that means a lot coming from you. As I said, walking in here, there's nobody that's more the man than you. Like you're, you know, I, I love the, like the courage that you exude on every topic. And, you know, I've you know been such a big fan of yours. So, well, was... I'm a big fan of yours too. So I'm glad we did this and Thank let's you, do it again. And, uh, oh, tell everybody, uh, one more time, the name of your podcast, uh, your Instagram, all that jazz. Yeah. So my podcast is called the genius life available on all podcast platforms. Uh, my Instagram is at Max Lugavere, M-A-X-L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. And then check out the trailer to Little Empty Boxes, which is uh, the first ever dementia prevention documentary, which I hope to uh, have out soon at littleemptyboxes.com. And how do you, um, the, this, the Genius Life, you have a book too? What is the book? Yeah. Oh my God, I forgot. I'm not, so I'm not like money, whatever, selling products. It's not my thing. I'm like just really passionate about you know, helping like educate people. But yeah, I've written three books. The first book was called uh, Genius Foods, and it really is a nutritional care manual for the human brain. So anybody- Genius Foods? Genius Foods. That's Did the first you book. do an audio of that as well? Yeah. It's, um, I think I bought it. Hold on a second. Genius Foods is, it's being used around the world. Like cl clinicians will use it um, to recommend to their patients. It's, uh, it really is like, you'll get like PhD level knowledge um, when you read Genius Foods and anybody, you know, if you're at risk for, you know, dementia or if you have a loved one or if you just want to know how to better fuel the brain, because we also talk about this new field, which is being called nutritional psychiatry. So how to get your brain to work better in the here and now. It really is everything you need to know about about food and the brain. The second book uh, was called The Genius Life. And in that I do a deep dive in terms of um, endocrine disruptors and, um, you know, nature immersion, all the sort of more lifestyle stuff. And then my third book just came out. It was called Genius Kitchen, and it's a two-in-one sort of like wellness guide and cookbook. But um, I just bought it now. Oh, I amazing. thought I'd bought it, but I bought it now. Amazing. All right. Max, you're the fucking man. Thank you're you very amazing. much. Appreciate you very much. Bye, everybody. Bye.